Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. I asked him why we follow the law of the bluest eye. He looked at me, he thought about it, was like I'm clueless. Why? The question was rhetorical, the answer was horrible. Our morals are out of place, it got a lot full of sorrow. And so tomorrow coming later than usual, waiting on someone to pity us. While we find the beauty in the hideous, they say money's the root of all evil, but I can't tell, you know what I mean? Pesos, Frank Shens, carry shells, dollar bills. Or is it the mind state that's ill, creating crime rates to fill the new prisons they build? Over money and religion, there's more blood that spills the wounds of slaves and cotton fields. And never heal. What's the deal? A lot of cats who buy records are straight broke. But my language universal, they be reciting my quotes. While RB singers hit bad notes. We rock the boat of thought that my man Lewis statements just provoke. Caught up in conversations of our personal worth. Brought up through endangered species status on the planet Earth. Survival tactics means busting gaps to prove you hard. Your firearms are too short to box with God. Without faith, all of that is illusionary. Raise my son, no vindication of manhood necessary. Not strong, only aggressive, not free. We only like. Not compassionate, only polite. Now who the nice? Not good, but we'll behave. Chasing after death so we can call ourselves brave. Still living like mental slaves. Hiding like thieves in the night from life. Illusions of oasis making you look twice. Hiding like thieves in the night from life. Illusions of oasis making you look yeah. twice. I'm sure that everybody out listening agree that everything you see ain't really how it be. A lot of jokers out running in place, chasing the style. Be a lot doing all beneath the empty smile. Most cats in my area be loving a hysteria. Synthesized surface conceals the interior. America, land the opportunity, mirages and camouflages, more than usually, speaking loudly, saying nothing, you confusing me, you losing me, your game is twisted, want me enlisted, and you usury, foolishly, most men join the ranks cluelessly, but foolishly accept the deception, believe the perception, reflection rarely seen across the surface of the looking glass, walking the street, wondering who they be looking past, looking gas, with them imported designer shades on, stars shine bright, but the light rarely stays on, same song, just remix, different arrangement, put you on the yacht, but they won't call it a slave ship Strangeness You don't control this You barely hold this Screaming brand new When they just sanitize The old shit Supposes Just another clever Jedi mind trick That they've been running Across stars Through all the time What I find is distressing There's never no in between We either niggas or kings We either bitches or queens The deadly ritual scenes Of mirth and the perverse Full of short attention span Short tempers and short skirts Long barrel automatics Released in short bursts The length of black life Is treated with short work Get yours first Them other niggas secondary that type of illin' that be filling up the cemetery This life is temporary, but the soul is eternal Separate the real from the lie Let me learn you're not sure, only aggressive
oppressive Cause the power ain't directed That's why we are subjected to the will of the oppressive Not free, we only license, not lie We just exciting cause the captives Hold the masters to what we writing Not compassionate, only polite We well trained, our sincerity's rehearsed the stage It's just a game, not good but we'll behave Cause the camera surveyed most of the things that we think, do, or say We chasing up the depth just to call ourselves brave With every day next man meet with the grave I give a damn if any fan recall my legacy I'm trying to live life in the sight of God's memory like that, y'all uh, A lot of people don't understand the true criterion of things you can't just accept their parents I think it's not strong, only aggressive, not free, we only license, not compassionate, only polite, not who the nicest, not good, but well behaved, chasing after death so we can call ourselves brave, still living like mental slaves, hiding like thieves in the night from life, illusions of oasis, making you look twice, hiding like thieves in the night from life, illusions of oasis, making you look twice. Hiding like thieves in the night from life, illusions of oasis, making you look twice. Hiding like thieves in the night from life, illusions of oasis, making you look twice. Stop hiding, stop hiding, stop hiding, yo, fake. Stop hiding, stop hiding, cause ain't no hiding, fake. Stop hiding, stop hiding, stop hiding, yo, fake. Stop hiding, stop hiding. Even when I wrote The Bluest Eye, the first book, mm -hmm, I was really writing a book I wanted to read. I mean, I didn't know, I hadn't seen a book in which black girls were center stage. They were usually, I don't know, somebody's joke yeah. on the periphery. You somewhere. were writing it for yourself, mm -hmm. not for any audience. Mm -mm. Not for African Americans, not for anybody, no, no, for no. yourself. For me. I wanted to read it. I wanted to read a book that had no codes, no little notes explaining things to white people, no little uh, clues, just something that I already knew and what was more provocative about it. And I had a major, major question in my mind at that time, which was how does a child learn self loathing uh, for racial purposes? Where does it come from? Who enables it? How is it infectious? And then what might be the consequences? And what were the answers? You learn it from the society at large. Institution. Institution, but more importantly than that, at a certain time, the self-loathing can be reinforced by one's own family, one's own community. You know, that con the concept of what is ugly can just be reinforced by people next door. Um, I remember girls who weren't blonde, who were who longed for that and felt terrible about themselves. I mean, all this physical beauty business is painful if you have to 
do what you do now, which is cut yourself up in little bits. Most of us have no idea of the pain it causes people because the society and the culture and the media and the magazines and the television and all the commercials bombard them with what it is to be attractive. And they define attractiveness in our culture and they find what's good and what's bad. So that all of a sudden, if you don't look <laughs> like that, you say, I don't like myself. Oh, you how do I go change it's myself? It's death. It's interior death. You never have an opportunity to develop what's really valuable, which is grace, yeah. balance, health, virtue, all those good things that each of us can be. But now, if you're going to worry, worry, worry about hair and skin color, <laughs> how tall you are and how short, I mean, I don't mean that self-esteem is not bound up in right. some of these things, yeah. but I'm talking about obsessive. Self-esteem is bound up in everything. Give me your take on Rodney King and Los Angeles and, and all of that experience. The most remarkable thing to me about Rodney King and what happened afterwards was people kept saying, oh, this terrible explosion, oh, the riots, oh, this is awful and could have been avoided, or what is it about? What struck me most about the people who were burning down shops and stealing was how long they waited. The restraint, not the spontaneity, the restraint. You realize the moment to be anarchic was when we saw those tapes. When we first saw those tapes. They waited for justice. They waited. How long was that? Nine months? A year? They waited for justice almost a year and then come. No one talks about the fact that no one ran out into the streets as I wanted to. I was sitting in there with my son. It was like a ballet. It was unbelievable. And I think everybody felt that way. And no one, they didn't do a thing. They waited. That's amazing. That's amazing to me. But what do you say to those of the same color who were damaged by that final explosion of rage? Oh, well, that breaks my heart. I'm heartbroken about the crime that's inward, that turns inward within the neighborhood. Um, there's an element of self-destruction. Uh, that is there for all sorts of reasons, um, some of which are the ones we mentioned in the Blue Star, which is just self-loathing. Some is just cul-de-sacs. Some is just a, a world in which you cannot even be a man. Excuse me, you can't be an adult without money. You know, when I grew up, yeah. you could be a grown-up and poor. I mean, you could, I don't know, build a house or go hunting. You or, made a point somewhere where the choices are awful. They are awful. So they have to have things in order to have respect. So they steal Deal things. To I get mean, things. Right. And or, you know, because they don't have things. So that, that's heartbreaking. If you can only be tall because somebody's on their knees, then you have a serious problem. And my feeling is white people have a very, very serious problem. And they should start thinking about what they can do about it. Take me out of it. Context of white supremacy. Justice, Gusty Renegade. In for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information 
on the system of white supremacy. Recorded live. I'm just pressing the uh, button. We will hop right into the program, skipping no beat. I hope, if anything, I've realized often, uh, I think uh, my phrase that I say is, is knowledge is demonstrated, right? I don't really want to hear people talking about, uh, oh, I'm, you know, the smartest person in the world, and, and I know this, so I'm the best uh, stockbroker in the world, I, I build the best houses in the world, I build the best uh, spaceships in the world, uh, you know, all that is demonstrated. If you build the best spaceships, let's be on Pluto in the next five minutes. You're the best basketball player, let's get the ball and hit the courts ASAP. Uh, knowledge is demonstrated, and I think uh, for me, sometimes uh, the counter racist code that I have, uh, I don't state it explicitly, it's just demonstrated. Uh, I have said consistently you have to expect white people to be trifling, tacky, terroristic, and uh, a long time ago <laughs> in a galaxy still dominated by racism, white supremacy, I told uh, back of the bus victim of racism. I told back of the bus when we started the cows radio program in 2007 before most of you all were even aware of Gus or this program that if we were effective uh, most likely white people would terminate the program uh, and I said that should be part of the gauge if what we're doing is really you know working against uh, what racist man racist woman racist child have in store for uh, melanin dominant people all across the planet, then they're going to turn the program off. That has happened not once, not twice, but thrice. Uh, I think for many of the folks tuning in to the old page at TalkShoe, uh, the white people at TalkShoe disabled the content and they did not give an explanation. Uh, they just said, you're in violation of the terms of service. No further explanation. Uh, they even told me about a year ago that you, if you are the host of a program at TalkShoe, you are responsible for any comments on the page, uh, meaning that if people leave any sort of uh, profane comments uh, on your page, you are responsible for deleting them. So they were even last year saying that was my fault or I was responsible for the uh, racist terrorists uh, who were just spamming the page regularly, writing all sorts of filthy things, racist uh, things on the page. Anywho, that is to be expected. We have a new page at TalkShoe. We're also simulcasting this program uh, on the Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, yeah, in fact, this program is also even streaming live on my blog. So you can tune in to racism-notes.blogspot.com and you can listen live there as well. So you just have to expect that sort of thing, particularly if what you're doing is working against white people. You just got to expect opposition. Uh, and I think the evidence shows that. Um, and I will remind folks now, they can gripe and complain about Gus T. Renegade, our efforts here at the Cows. There is more than one program on TalkShoe's network that has a swastika as the avatar for the page. And they have no problem putting that on the front page. When you log into TalkShoe, they have no problem having that out front 
as one of the programs that you can access as a community call. I will end there so that we have ample time for uh, the bluest die, Tony Morrison. The number to dial is 760-569-7676. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you have questions. Press star 8 if you're on the talk shoe line if you have questions. I'll give out the number a few more times as we roll, but I wholeheartedly agree with Toni Morrison. White people have serious problems. Now it's not just me saying it. I'm in total agreement with Toni Morrison. Anywho, we will get ready uh, for the final segment of our study session on The Bluest Eye. One of my favorite books, hands down. Uh, I'll give out some of the books that we have as an option for our next set of uh, book study sessions uh, coming up, but I'll do that later in the program. Uh, Just some things that we kind of want to keep in mind. Um, I think some of the major, some of the major themes have been black males and, and them functioning as terrorists towards other black people in the book. I think that's been a major theme. Uh, I think religion, that has also been a major theme uh, being a Maginot line, Maginot line, excuse me, one of our terms from the book, uh, impressive but ineffective defense. And just the different ways that religion comes in and how that has been able to pacify some of the black characters in the book or not. Major themes uh, and also the children just being the most vulnerable element, Uh, adults not being able to protect them. Uh, adults terrorizing them in some instances uh, and just really showing uh, what Mr. Fuller says that black people are not able to be fathers, not able to be mothers, not able to be wives, not able to be husbands. I think all of that has been uh, duly evidenced in the book thus far. At any rate, we will proceed. This is uh, the final installment of Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. We'll do as we have been doing. First segment, we'll stop. Questions, comments, looking forward to hearing dialogue. And then once that segment ends, we will uh, move to the second segment. Definitely looking forward to hearing feedback. So take notes, have a pen and pad at hand so you can take notes and uh, have your ideas written down to participate in the discussion. This would be Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, first segment. The Bluest Eye, Cassette 5. Young Elihu was saved from visible shattering by the steady hand of his father, who reminded him of the family's reputation and Velma's questionable one. He then pursued his studies with more vigor than before and decided at last to enter the ministry. When he was advised that he had no avocation, he left the island, came to America to study the then budding field of psychiatry but the subject required too much truth, too many confrontations, and offered too little support for a failing ego. He drifted into sociology, then physical therapy. This diverse education continued for six years, when his father refused to support him any longer until he found himself. Elihu, not knowing where to look, was thrown back on his own devices and found himself quite unable to earn money. 
he began to sink into a rapidly fraying gentility, punctuated with a few of the white-collar occupations available to black people, regardless of their noble bloodlines in America. Desk clerk at a colored hotel in Chicago, insurance agent, traveling salesman for a cosmetics firm catering to blacks. He finally settled in Lorraine, Ohio, in 1931, palming himself off as a minister and inspiring all with the way he spoke English. The women of the town early discovered his celibacy, and not being able to comprehend his rejection of them, decided that he was supernatural rather than unnatural. Once he understood their decision, he quickly followed through, accepting the name Soaphead Church and the role they had given him. He rented a kind of backroom apartment from a deeply religious old lady named Bertha Reese. She was clean, quiet, and very close to total deafness. The lodgings were ideal in every way but one. Bertha Reese had an old dog, Bob who, although as deaf and quiet as she, was not as clean. He slept most of his days away on the back porch, which was Elihu's entrance. The dog was too old to be of any use, and Bertha Reese had no strength or presence of mind to care for him properly. She fed him and watered him, left him alone. The dog was mangy. His exhausted eyes ran with the sea-green matter around which gnats and flies clustered. Soaphead was revolted by Bob and wished he would hurry up and die. He regarded this wish for the dog's death as humane, for he could not bear, he told himself, to see anything suffer. It didn't occur to him that he was really concerned about his own suffering, since the dog had adjusted himself to frailty and old age. Soaphead, finally determined to put an end to the animal's misery, and bought some poison with which to do it. Only the horror of having to go near him had prevented Soaphead from completing his mission. He waited for rage or blinding revulsion to spur him. Living there among his worn things, rising early every morning from dreamless sleeps, he counseled those who sought his advice. His business was dread. People came to him in dread, whispered in dread, wept and pleaded in dread and dread was what he counseled. Singly, they found their way to his door, wrapped each in a shroud, stitched with anger, yearning, pride, vengeance, loneliness, misery, defeat, and hunger. They asked for the simplest of things, love, health, and money. Make him love me. Tell me what this dream means. Help me get rid of this woman. Make my mother give me back my clothes. Stop my left hand from shaking. Keep my baby's ghost off the stove. Break so-and-so's fix. To all of these requests, he addressed himself. His practice was to do what he was bid, not to suggest to a party that perhaps the request was unfair, mean, or hopeless. With only occasional and increasingly rare encounters with the little girls he could persuade to be entertained by him, he lived rather peaceably, among his things, admitting to no regrets. He was aware, of course, that something was awry in his life, and all lives, but put the problem where it belonged, at the foot of the originator of life. He believed that since decay, vice, filth, and disorder were pervasive, 
They must be in the nature of things. Evil existed because God had created it. He, God, had made a sloven and unforgivable error in judgment, designing an imperfect universe. Theologians justified the presence of corruption as a means by which men strove, were tested, and triumphed, a triumph of cosmic neatness. But this neatness, the neatness of Dante, was in the orderly sectioning and segregating of all levels of evil and decay. In the world, it was not so. The most exquisite-looking ladies sat on toilets, and the most dreadful-looking had pure and holy yearnings. God had done a poor job, and Soap had suspected that he himself could have done better. It was, in fact, a pity that the Maker had not sought his counsel. Soaphead was reflecting once again on these thoughts one late hot afternoon when he heard a tap on his door. Opening it, he saw a little girl quite unknown to him. She was about twelve or so, he thought, and seemed to him pitifully unattractive. When he asked her what she wanted, she did not answer, but held out to him one of his cards, advertising his gifts and services— if you are overcome with trouble and conditions that are not natural, I can remove them. Overcome spells, bad luck, and evil influences. Remember, I am a true spiritualist and psychic reader, born with power, and I will help you. Satisfaction in one visit. During many years of practice, I have brought together many in marriage and reunited many who were separated. If you are unhappy, discouraged, or in distress, I can help you. Does bad luck seem to follow you? Has the one you love changed? I can tell you why. I will tell you who your enemies and friends are, and if the one you love is true or false. If you are sick, I can show you the way to health. I locate lost and stolen articles. Satisfaction guaranteed. Soaphead Church told her to come in. What can I do for you, my child? She stood there, her hands folded across her stomach, a little protruding pot of tummy. Maybe, maybe you can do it for me. Do what for you? I can't go to school no more, and I thought maybe you could help me. Help you how? Tell me, don't be frightened. My eyes. What about your eyes? I want them blue. Soaphead pursed his lips and let his tongue stroke a gold inlay. He thought it was at once the most fantastic and the most logical petition he had ever received. Here was an ugly little girl asking for beauty. A surge of love and understanding swept through him, but was quickly replaced by anger. Anger that he was powerless to help her. Of all the wishes people had brought him, money, love, revenge, this seemed to him the most poignant and the one most deserving of fulfillment. A little black girl who wanted to rise up out of the pit of her blackness and see the world with blue eyes. His outrage grew and felt like power. For the first time, he honestly wished he could work miracles. Never before had he really wanted the true and holy power, only the power to make others believe he had it. 
It seems so sad, so frivolous, that mere mortality, not judgment, kept him from it. Or did it? With a trembling hand, he made the sign of the cross over her. His flesh crawled. In that hot, dim little room of worn things, he was chilled. I can do nothing for you, my child. I am not a magician. I work only through the Lord. He sometimes uses me to help people. All I can do is offer myself to him as the instrument through which he works. If he wants your wish granted, he will do it. Soped walked to the window, his back to the girl. His mind raced, stumbled, and raced again. How to frame the next sentence? How to hang on to the feeling of power? His eye fell on old Bob, sleeping on the porch. We must make, uh, some offering, that is, some contact with nature. Perhaps... Some simple creature might be the vehicle through which he will speak. Let us see. He knelt down at the window and moved his lips. After what seemed a suitable length of time, he rose and went to the icebox that stood near the open window. From it, he removed a small packet wrapped in pinkish butcher paper. From a shelf, he took a small brown bottle and sprinkled some of its contents on the substance inside the paper. He put the packet, partly opened, on the table. Take this food and give it to the creature sleeping on the porch. Make sure he eats it, and mark well how he behaves. If nothing happens, you will know that God has refused you. If the animal behaves strangely, your wish will be granted on the day following this one. The girl picked up the packet. The odor of the dark, sticky meat made her want to vomit. She put a hand on her stomach. Courage, courage, my child. These things are not granted to faint hearts. She nodded and swallowed visibly, holding down the vomit. Soaphead opened the door, and she stepped over the threshold. Goodbye. God bless, he said and quickly shut the door. At the window, he stood watching her, his eyebrows pulled together into waves of compassion, his tongue fondling the worn gold in his upper jaw. He saw the girl bending down to the sleeping dog, who, at her touch, opened one liquid eye, matted in the corners with what looked like green glue. She reached out and touched the dog's head, stroking him gently. She placed the meat on the floor of the porch, near his nose. The odor roused him. He lifted his head and got up to smell it better. He ate it in three or four gulps. The girl stroked his head again, and the dog looked up at her with soft triangle eyes. Suddenly, he coughed, the cough of a phlegmy old man, and got to his feet. The girl jumped. The dog gagged his mouth chomping the air, and promptly fell down. He tried to raise himself, could not, tried again, and half fell down the steps. Choking, stumbling, he moved like a broken toy around the yard. The girl's mouth was open, 
a little petal of tongue showing. She made a wild, pointless gesture with one hand and then covered her mouth with both hands. She was trying not to vomit. The dog fell again, a spasm jerking his body. Then he was quiet. The girl's hands covering her mouth, she backed away a few feet, then turned, ran out of the yard and down the walk. Soaphead Church went to the table. He sat down, with folded hands balancing his forehead on the balls of his thumbs. Then he rose and went to a tiny night table with a drawer, from which he took paper and a fountain pen. A bottle of ink was on the same shelf that held the poison. With these things, he sat again at the table, slowly, carefully, relishing his penmanship. He wrote the following letter. Attention. To he who greatly ennobled human nature by creating it. Dear God, the purpose of this letter is to familiarize you with facts which either have escaped your notice or which you have chosen to ignore. Once upon a time, I lived greenly and youngish on one of your islands, an island of the archipelago in the South Atlantic between North and South America, enclosing the Caribbean Sea and the Gulf of Mexico, divided into the Greater Antilles, the Lesser Antilles, and the Bahama Islands, not the windward or leeward island colonies, mark you, but within, of course, the greater of the two Antilles. While the precision of my prose may be at times laborious, it is necessary that I identify myself to you clearly. Now, we in this colony took as our own the most dramatic and the most obvious of our white master's characteristics, which were, of course, their worst. In retaining the identity of our race, we held fast to those characteristics most gratifying to sustain and least troublesome to maintain. Consequently, we were not royal, but snobbish, not aristocratic, but class-conscious. We believed authority was cruelty to our inferiors, and education was being at school. We mistook violence for passion, indolence for leisure and thought recklessness was freedom. We raised our children and reared our crops. We let infants grow and property develop. Our manhood was defined by acquisitions, our womanhood by acquiescence, and the smell of your fruit and the labor of your days we abhorred. This morning, before the little black girl came, I cried for Velma. Oh, not aloud. There is no wind to carry, bear, or even refuse to bear, a sound so heavy with regret. But in my silent own lone way, I cried for Velma. You need to know about Velma to understand what I did today. She, Velma, left me the way people leave a hotel room. A hotel room is a place to be when you are doing something else. Of itself, it is of no consequence to one's major scheme. A hotel room is convenient, but its convenience is limited to the time you need it, 
while you are in that particular town on that particular business. You hope it is comfortable, but prefer rather that it be anonymous. It is not, after all, where you live. When you no longer need it, you pay a little something for its use, say, thank you, sir, and when your business in that town is over, you go away from that room. Does anybody regret leaving a hotel room? Does anybody who has a home, a real home somewhere, want to stay there? Does anybody look back with affection or even disgust at a hotel room when they leave it? You can only love or despise whatever living was done in that room. But the room itself? But you take a souvenir. Not, oh, not to remember the room. To remember, rather, the time and the place of your business, your adventure. What can anyone feel for a hotel room? One doesn't any more feel for a hotel room than one expects a hotel room to feel for its occupant. That heavenly, heavenly father was how she left me, or rather, she never left me because she was never, ever there. You remember, do you, how and of what we are made? Let me tell you now about the breasts of little girls. I apologize for the inappropriateness. Is that it? The imbalance of loving them at awkward times of day and in awkward places and the tastelessness of loving those who belong to members of my family. Do I have to apologize for loving strangers? But you too are a miss here, Lord. How, why did you allow it to happen? How is it I could lift my eyes from the contemplation of your body and fall deeply into the contemplation of theirs. The buds, the buds on some of these saplings, they were mean, you know, mean and tender. Mean little buds resisting the touch, springing like rubber, but aggressive, daring me to touch, commanding me to touch, not a bit shy, as you'd suppose. They stuck out at me, oh yes, at me. Slender-chested, finger-chested lassies. Have you ever seen them, Lord? I mean, really seen them. One could not see them and not love them. You who made them must have considered them lovely, even as an idea. How much more lovely is the manifestation of that idea? I couldn't, as you must recall, keep my hands, my mouth, off them. Salt sweet. Like not quite ripe strawberries, covered with the light salt sweat of running days and hopping, skipping, jumping hours. The love of them, the touch, taste, and feel of them, was not just an easy, luxurious human vice. They were, for me... A thing to do instead, instead of Papa, instead of the cloth, instead of Velma, and I chose not to do without them. But I didn't go into the church. At least I didn't do that. As to what I did do, I told people I knew all about you, that I had received your power. 
It was not a complete lie, but it was a complete lie. I should never have, I admit. I should never have taken their money in exchange for well-phrased, well-placed, well-faced lies. But, mark you, I hated it. Not for a moment did I love the lies or the money. But consider. The woman who left the hotel room. Consider. The green time. The noon time of the archipelago. Consider. Their hopeful eyes that were outdone only by their hoping breath. Consider. How I needed a comfortable evil to prevent my knowing what I could not bear to know. Consider how I hated and despised the money. And now, consider, not according to my just deserts, but according to my mercy, the little black girl that came a-looning at me today. Tell me, Lord, how could you leave a lass so long, so lone, that she could find her way to me? How could you? I weep for you, Lord. And it is because I weep for you that I had to do your work for you. Do you know what she came for? Blue eyes. New blue eyes, she said, like she was buying shoes. I'd like a pair of new blue eyes. She must have asked you for them for a very long time. And you hadn't replied. A habit, I could have told her. A long-ago habit broken for Job. But no more. She came to me for them. She had one of my cards. Card enclosed. By the way, I added the Micah. Elihu Micah Whitcomb. But I am called Soaphead Church. I cannot remember how or why I got the name... What makes one name more a person than another? Is the name the real thing, then? And the person only what his name says? Is that why, to the simplest and friendliest of questions, what is your name, put to you by Moses, you would not say, and said instead, I am who I am, like Popeye, I am what I am. Afraid you were, weren't you, to give out your name? Afraid they would know the name, and then know you. Then they wouldn't fear you. It's quite all right. Don't be vexed. I mean no offense. I understand. I have been a bad man, too. And an unhappy man, too. But someday I will die. I was always so kind. Why do I have to die? The little girls. The little girls are the only things I'll miss. Do you know that when I touched their sturdy little tits and bit them just a little, I felt I was being friendly? I didn't want to kiss their mouths, or sleep in the bed with them, or take a child bride for my own. Playful, I felt, and friendly. Not like the newspapers said, not like the people whispered. And they didn't mind at all, not at all. Remember how so many of them came back? No one would even try to understand that. If I'd been hurting them, would they have come back? Two of them, Doreen and Sugar Babe? They'd come together. I gave them mints, money, 
and they'd eat ice cream with their legs open while I played with them. It was like a party. And there wasn't nastiness, and there wasn't any filth, and there wasn't any odor, and there wasn't any groaning, just the light white laughter of little girls and me. And there wasn't any look, any long, funny look, any long, funny Velma look afterward. No look that makes you feel dirty afterward, that makes you want to die. With little girls, it is all clean and good and friendly. You have to understand that, Lord. You said, suffer little children to come unto me and harm them not. Did you forget? Did you forget about the children? Yes, you forgot. You let them go wanting. Sit on road shoulders, crying next to their dead mothers. I've seen them, charred, lame, halt. You forgot, Lord. You forgot how and when to be God. That's why I changed the little black girl's eyes for her. And I didn't touch her. Not a finger did I lay on her. But I gave her those blue eyes she wanted. Not for pleasure. Not for money. I did what you did not, could not, would not do. I looked at that ugly little black girl, and I loved her. I played you. And it was a very good show. I... I have caused a miracle. I gave her the eyes. I gave her the blue, blue, two blue eyes. Cobalt blue. A streak of it, right out of your own blue heaven. No one else will see her blue eyes, but she will. And she will live happily ever after. I, I have found it meet and right so to do. Now you are jealous. You are jealous of me. You see? I, too, have created, not aboriginally, like you. But creation is a heady wine, more for the taster than the brewer. Having therefore imbibed, as it were, of the nectar, I am not afraid of you, of death, not even of life. And it's all right about Velma. And it's all right about Papa. And it's all right about the greater and the lesser Antilles. Quite all right. Quite. With kindest regards, I remain your Elihu Micah Whitcomb. Soaphead Church folded the sheets of paper into three equal parts and slipped them into an envelope. Although he had no seal, he longed for sealing wax. He removed a cigar box from under the bed and rummaged about in it. There were some of his most precious things, a sliver of jade that had dislodged from a cufflink at the Chicago Hotel, a gold pendant shaped like a Y with a piece of coral attached to it that had belonged to the mother he never knew, four large hairpins that Velma had left on the rim of the bathroom sink, a powder blue grosgrain ribbon from the head of a little girl named Precious Jewel, a blackened faucet head from the sink in a jail cell in Cincinnati, two marbles he had found under a bench in Morningside Park on a very fine spring day, an old lucky heart catalog 
that smelled still of nut-brown and mocha face powder and lemon vanishing cream. Distracted by his things, he forgot what he had been looking for. The effort to recall was too great. There was a buzzing in his head, and a wash of fatigue overcame him. He closed his box, eased himself out on the bed, and slipped into an ivory sleep from which he could not hear the tiny yelps of an old lady who had come out of her candy store and found the still carcass of an old dog named Bob. Summer I have only to break into the tightness of a strawberry, and I see summer. It's dust and lowering skies. It remains for me a season of storms. The parched days and sticky nights are undistinguished in my mind, but the storms, the violent, sudden storms, both frightened and quenched me. But my memory is uncertain. I recall a summer storm in the town where we lived, and imagine a summer my mother knew in 1929. There was a tornado that year, she said, that blew away half of South Lorraine. I mix up her summer with my own. Biting the strawberry, thinking of storms, I see her. A slim young girl in a pink crepe dress. One hand is on her hip. The other lolls about her thigh, waiting. The wind swoops her up, high above the houses, but she is still standing, hand on hip, smiling. The anticipation and promise in her lolling hand are not altered by the Holocaust. In the summer tornado of 1929, my mother's hand is unextinguished. She is strong, smiling, and relaxed, while the world falls down about her. So much for memory. Public fact becomes private reality, and the seasons of a Midwestern town become the moirai of our small lives. The summer was already thick when Frida and I received our seeds. We had waited since April for the magic package containing the packets and packets of seeds we were to sell for five cents each, which would entitle us to a new bicycle. We believed it and spent a major part of every day trooping about the town selling them. Although Mama had restricted us to the homes of the people she knew or the neighborhoods familiar to us, we knocked on all doors and floated in and out of every house that opened to us, twelve-room houses that sheltered half as many families, smelling of grease and urine, tiny wooden four-room houses tucked into bushes near the railroad tracks, the up-over places, apartments up over fish markets, butcher shops, furniture stores, saloons, restaurants. Tidy brick houses with flowered carpets and glass bowls with fluted edges. During that summer of the seed selling, we thought about the money, thought about the seeds, and listened with only half an ear to what people were saying. In the houses of people who knew us, we were asked to come in and sit, given cold water or lemonade, and while we sat there being refreshed, the people continued their conversations or went about their chores. Little by little, we began to piece a story together, a secret, terrible, awful story. And it was only after two or three such vaguely overheard conversations that we realized that the story was about Piccola. 
properly placed, the fragments of talk ran like this. Did you hear about that girl? What, pregnant? Yes. But guess who? Who? I don't know all these little old boys. That's just it. Ain't no little old boy. They say it's Charlie. Charlie? Her daddy? Uh-huh. Lord have mercy, that dirty nigger. Remember that time he tried to burn them up? I knew he was crazy for sure then. What's she gonna do? The mama. Keep on like she been, I reckon. He taken off. Connie ain't gonna let her keep that baby, is they? I don't know. None of them breed love seemed right anyhow. That boy is off somewhere every minute, and the girl was always foolish. Don't nobody know nothing about them anyway. Where they come from or nothing. Don't seem to have no people. What you reckon made him do a thing like that? Beats me just nasty. Well, they ought to take her out of school. Ought to. She carries some of the blame. Oh, come on. She ain't but twelve or so. Yeah, but you never know. How come she didn't fight him? Maybe she did. Yeah? You never know. Well, it probably won't live. They say the way her mama beat her, she lucky to be alive herself. She be lucky if it don't live. Bound to be the ugliest thing walking. Can't help but be. Ought to be a law. Two ugly people doubling up like that make more ugly. Be better off in the ground. Well, I wouldn't worry none. It'd be a miracle if it lived. Our astonishment was short-lived. For it gave way to a curious kind of defensive shame. We were embarrassed for Piccola, hurt for her, and finally we just felt sorry for her. Our sorrow drove out all thoughts of the new bicycle, and I believe our sorrow was the more intense because nobody else seemed to share it. They were disgusted, amused, shocked, outraged, or even excited by the story. But we listened for the one who would say, Poor little girl, or poor baby. But there was only head-wagging where those words should have been. We looked for eyes, creased with concern, but saw only veils. I thought about the baby that everybody wanted dead, and saw it very clearly. It was in a dark, wet place, its head covered with great O's of wool, the black face holding, like nickels, two clean black eyes, the flared nose, kissing thick lips, and the living, breathing silk of black skin. No synthetic yellow bangs suspended over marble blue eyes, no pinched nose and bowline mouth. More strongly than my fondness for Piccola, I felt a need for someone to want the black baby to live, just to counteract the universal love of white baby dolls, Shirley Temples and Maureen Peel. And Frida must have felt the same thing. We didn't think of the fact that Piccola was not married. Lots of girls had babies who were not married. And we didn't dwell on the fact that the baby's father was Piccola's father, too. The process of having a baby by any male was incomprehensible to us. At least she knew her father. We thought only of this overwhelming hatred for the unborn baby. We remembered Mrs. Breedlove knocking Piccola down and soothing the pink tears of the frozen baby doll that sounded like the door of our icebox. 
we remembered the knuckled eyes of schoolchildren under the gaze of meringue pie, and the eyes of these same children when they looked at the cola. Or maybe we didn't remember, we just knew. We had defended ourselves since memory against everything and everybody, considered all speech a code to be broken by us, and all gestures subject to careful analysis. We had become headstrong, devious, and arrogant. Nobody paid us any attention, so we paid very good attention to ourselves. Our limitations were not known to us, not then. Our only handicap was our size. People gave us orders because they were bigger and stronger. So it was with confidence, strengthened by pity and pride, that we decided to change the course of events and alter a human life. What are we going to do, Frida? What can we do? Miss Johnson said it would be a miracle if it lived. So let's make it a miracle. Yeah, but how? We could pray. That's not enough. Remember last time with the bird? That was different. It was half dead when we found it. I don't care. I still think we have to do something really strong this time. Let's ask him to let Piccola's baby live and promise to be good for a whole month. Okay, but we better give up something so he'll know we really mean it this time. Give up what? We ain't got nothing. Nothing but the seed money. Two dollars. We could give that. Or, you know what? We could give up the bike, bury the money, and plant the seeds. All of the money? Claudia, do you want to do it or not? Okay, I just thought, okay, we have to do it right now. We'll bury the money over by her house so we can't go back and dig it up. And we'll plant the seeds out back of our house so we can watch over them. And when they come up, we'll know everything is all right. All right? All right. Only let me sing this time. You say the magic words. This ends side one of cassette five. Please turn the cassette over and start side two at the same point. Context of white supremacy. Uh, folks listening in on the uh, talk to you line, I got disconnected for a quick moment, but uh, should be back now. I should be able to hear with no issues, no worries. All good. Well, not all good. Apologies. Uh, not all good, but at least the audio should be straight. Anywho, almost at the end of the book. Almost at the end of the book. One more side to go. Uh, the number to dial in for folks who want to uh, share their thoughts. 760-569-7676. And the code is 564 nine four three pound uh, press star six if you have questions star eight if you're on the talk shoe line uh, star six if you uh, are on the seven six zero number that number again is seven six zero five six nine seven six seven six and the code is five six four nine four three pound 
Uh, let's see. I think this might be B more with a hand up. B more. Uh, your line should be open. I'll uh, open up the others as we roll. Um, peace, Gus, and all the other listeners. Yes, this is B more. Um, goodness, I don't know where to start. <laughs> Very sad um segment. Um, I guess I'll talk about the gossiping about Tacola. Um, I think it was really crazy how. They said that she was to blame. Here she is, a 12-year-old girl, um, a victim of incest by her own father, and they're sitting around gossiping, uh, I think adult women, sitting around gossiping about her. No one's been empathetic, talking about she's the one to blame and how the baby's going to be ugly and deserve to die. Um, Precious came to mind. Uh, I watched that movie one time. I was scarred by it. I couldn't get the images out of my head, but that's the movie that came to mind. Um, and I just want to say we're all guilty of blaming the victim. It's like breaking somebody's legs and calling them crippled. And that's all I have to say. Wow. Uh, person 9325, 9325, your line should be open. Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, what, <clears throat> what jumped out at me is... Uh, Soapead Church was the third male that was involved in uh, sexual molestation. Uh, the first it was, I believe, Mr. Henry, and then it was Charlie, and now Soapead Church. And so we got a continuation of, you know, I guess, black male. Uh, terror going on here. But <clears throat> I thought, too, it was significant that uh, Claudia uh, escaped, you know, any type of uh, sexual perversion. Her little sister was molested by uh, Mr. Henry. And then, of course, uh, Cola, by her father. And then Sopan Church. And Sopan Church, to me, seemed like when he wrote the letter to God that he was somewhat insane because he thought he was uh, telling God something or that he was doing something that God could not do. But that's, that's insane in itself. And then the fact that he didn't like to touch human flesh, but then he liked little girls. He was a real twisted puppy. You know, and it makes you wonder if there really are people in the world that you know, think like him. I think it was an amazing feat for Tony Morrison to let us peep into the mind of a pedophile. But, um, you know, it's pretty gruesome. So, that's it for now. Maybe I get a chance to say something else. Uh, I'll keep uh, an eye out for other callers if they want to add uh, before we get to segment two, if people have other thoughts they want to share on the first segment. But that section where she's kind of, I guess, breaking down or giving you the perspective of Soaphead Church, and he's kind of uh, rationalizing his uh, sexual molestation and rape of these young girls. 
uh, when you said you, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but you were saying basically you couldn't uh, imagine someone thinking this way. It reminded me of the uh, the New York Times, or yeah, the New York Times Magazine. They have a whole series on uh, prep school predators, and there's a section where they have a pedophile. Uh, he's I don't know. He's in, he's old now. He's like in his 70s, 80s. He's retired from teaching. And he admits that, you know, yes, I was sexually involved with several of my students and he talks about it and it sounds eerily similar to the passage where Soped Church is talking like, what are you talking about? They kept coming back and do you think they would have come back if I had been hurting them? And it was just great. It was a wonderful relationship and, you know, I, I don't understand why any, or how anyone could conclude that something wrong was happening here. I mean, it sounds eerily similar. Um, I don't want to read the uh, the whole article, but uh, it was in the New York Times in June. I have it uh, I have it bookmarked, so I can just give out the link. I don't want to I don't want to read it from folks to take away from Toni Morrison's text, but it like I mean, you talk about on the money. She could have just substituted what this guy said uh, to the New York Times magazine and just put it in the bluest eye. She would have she would have hit it exactly. One other thing that stood out for me, just looking for patterns, uh, we were talking earlier about. We were talking earlier about uh, this pattern, uh, this uh, misbehavior. Um, Charlie Breedlove, who's Pacola's father, uh, molesting her. Mister Henry, the boarder who lived with the. Uh, McTears, uh, Claudia and Frida uh, lived, stayed with them and uh, now Soaphead Church Mr. Breedlove uh, Charlie Breedlove, Pacola's father, he had a very similar line to what Soaphead Church just shared um, when he said that he was powerless and impotent. We talked about it last week or I highlighted it last week uh, him the moments before he goes to rape Pacola uh, where he talks about how just looking at it, it's so similar. He's looking at her like, my gosh, what does she do at 11 to be so broken and defeated? And, and he's looking at her and he's saying, I'm a black male. I'm supposed to be her father and I'm powerless and impotent to do anything to help her, uh, to assist her, to make anything better for her. And you have Soped Church, black, another black male, saying almost the same thing. I have this pitiful... I'm sorry? No, I didn't say it. Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah, you, you have another black male coming in and making a similar admission that, you know, I am helpless to do anything. What can I do for you uh, other than, you know, something sexual? Even if that's not the correct thing to do, that would really be the worst thing to do. That is about the only power that I have as a black male. Uh, that is about the only way that I can exert any force, influence, even a semblance of power uh, if you are a female is sexually um, 
that just really stood out to me that it's so somehow I think that was what we heard last week. Yeah, so another thing I wanted to mention was I had always thought of impotence being a like a lack of being able to perform sexually. But you know, since reading this book and discussing and I've uh looked the definition up, it's just means weakness or a lack of strength. So you could actually use the word impotent uh, in another way. You could you could actually say that you know the black male in America in a racist society would be impotent, and that could be a true statement, and it wouldn't have anything to do with uh, sexual. My YouTube video got that definition at the very beginning, definition for impotence, and Mr. Fuller has said that. I think that's one of our recognized sound clips from the cows, Mr. Fuller saying that the most impotent creature on the planet in the form of a person is the black male. Uh, I don't think he was talking sexual. I think that was the definition that you just shared. I think that's the definition he was using for uh, impotence, but uh, yeah, I could not agree more. I think this book makes that point repeatedly. Um, 8162, your line is open. 1996, your lines are also open. Yes, hello. Greetings, Gus. This is Minnie B. Shubidoo. Shubidoo. Bruce Fine. Minnie B. Shubidoo. I found you. The talk talk shoe was not working today. Hmm. Um, But as I was listening, uh, I was just fascinated by Toni Morrison's use of language, and I found myself for a moment uh, even feeling twistedly seduced by her words as as I was reading along with uh, the audio. And um, I think that really speaks to the power of Toni Morrison's um, ability to communicate and be descriptive of these experiences of the various characters. What do you mean by you're being seduced? What do you mean by that? Uh, just being being so drawn into, uh, as she's describing these uh, these the, the pedophiles and how you know at one point it's violent, pernicious, but the the eloquence in which she uh, brings us into their mind it is like oh. Well, I, well, wow. Okay, I guess if you're thinking like that, I could see how you would become a pedophile. And it's it's, um, and it was, uh, yeah. That's what I mean. 
seduced by the language and and and, and the words. I think it was also significant how um, Sophie's church kept these sort of trinkets of like uh, like the ribbon from the little girl and the hair bows and all this type stuff. Like that was that was really crazy too. And how he opened mm-hmm. the box and forgot what he was even looking for in the beginning because he was so, I guess, entranced by all these little things that he forgot what he was looking for. And it, it must have soothed him so much that he was able to go to sleep. Well, I think that's where that seduction of each of these trinkets is. He he was remembering molesting each, you know, each each person associated with the the, the, the trinket. Reliving it in a way. Can I be heard? Yes. Okay, I just had um, two points that I wanted to make. Um, The first one, I was listening to how uh, Soaphead was talking about molesting the girls. It reminded me, well, it made me think of the Catholic Church and, you know, all of the scandal that they have about molesting children even though it's normally boys that, you know, we hear about them molesting. But I'm just wondering, is that like some of the same kind of words that they use to try to, you know, justify the things that they do to children, the rape that they do to children? And I was also thinking sometimes when I was listening, to, you know, to the part about Soaphead, I was thinking about how sometimes, um, like, we give preachers and, you know, people who are supposed to be, spiritual advisors, a lot of power. And I think that sometimes we put them, we exalt them so that we look at them as they are, like like they're the creator. And then, you know, if, if a child comes to you and tells you something that the person did, you can't see, you can't separate the person from, you know, being this deity or whatever, and you, can, you don't really believe the child. So I just thought that was really... Um, that was really telling because I think that that's something that happens a lot in our community, and I'm not I'm not really sure why that happens that way, but I it happens a lot, and that was you know that's very upsetting for me. But I was also wondering like why was it that her friends, the two sisters, were the only ones who seemed to be concerned with how um, the little girl may be feeling after being pregnant and being raped by her father? Um, that's really all I had to say. I'd say that's pretty standard, um, at least for this book anyway. I think it's pretty standard. Unfortunately, I would say it's pretty standard uh, in real life uh, where people who are black people who are victims of some sort of sexual molestation don't get the appropriate response from adults. I think we talked about that over and over and over uh, where they do not get any attention. They do not get any concern. No one comes to them with hordes of, of counseling options and to hold their hand and, you know, to really make sure that they everything possible is done to help that person heal. That doesn't typically happen for black, whether it's a black female child or a black male child. That typically doesn't happen. So I'd say the book 
unfortunately, it accurately captures what tends to take place for black children. Um, but I think the same thing happened. I think we talked about it when I think it was uh, Frida Claw. I'm mixing up the two uh, siblings, but uh, either Frida or, Frida or Claudia when they were uh, Mr. Henry uh, attempted to sexually molest them and uh, we talked about how the adults didn't really do any talking to the children you know they got the shotgun got the broom ran Mr. Henry off but nobody went really went to uh, do anything with the children to talk to them about what happened see how they were feeling about it to make sure they were okay and you ended up with them running around trying to get liquor uh, from Pecola's father so I would say it's pretty standard uh, both in the book and real time on the plantation I agree I, I think it's pretty standard also um like I know with me, my mother and my father, they just used to always talk to me all from, I can't even remember what age, but from very young, from early on, they were always talking to us about that, me and my brother. So I think, you know, having that knowledge about, you know, your body and boundaries and what's right and what's not right, I think that's just really important. And we can find some kind of way to get home or whatever it is that we feel about, you know, discussing those kinds of issues because it's it's happening too much in um in our community and, you know, with you no know, school and it can just happen anywhere. So I want to get more comfortable discussing it with our um with our children. I'm getting a little background noise if y'all could watch that. Uh, I made an error not to custom uh, to some of the voices yet. I thought that was Bruce Fine, and it was not um, the caller who was just speaking. Um, my bad. I do uh, agree with the commentary, though. Uh, Bruce Fine is with us, and uh, I think this is uh, be more dialing back in to the rest of the folks. If you have questions or comments uh, you would like to add, press star six and I'll get your line as well. But uh, Bruce Fine, you should be with us. Uh, be more, your line should be back open and everybody else who is already with us, your lines are still open. Just watch the background noise. Okay. Can I be heard? <clears throat> yes, ma'am. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was saying, can I be heard like a thousand times? I, I had to hang up and dial back in, but I wanted to, um, make a, a comment about uh, Sophead using God and the Bible to justify his uh, pedophilia. I remember when I was a, a teenager, um, this white guy, he had uh, so-called retired from uh, uh, being the owner of a um, quote-unquote prostitution house, whorehouse, out in Las Vegas for 30 years. And he said to, uh, I think he was on uh, 2020 or something, and he said that he believes he did not do anything incorrect because he feels that if he was doing something incorrect, God would have killed him or, or God would have uh, caused his uh, empire to be uh, shut down or, or closed. So it, it, it's so many people who will say what Sophie said. Well, you know, I can't be doing anything correct. They're enjoying it. It's not smelly. It's not they're giggling and, and, and all of these things. And that right there, them needing to justify, to, uh, tells me 
that they indeed know that what they are doing is incorrect, but they just have no desire to stop it. So they have to be able to sleep at night or sleep during the day whenever they sleep. And uh, this is how they live with themselves. They say that God is okay with it, uh, that the, their victim is okay with it. And just uh, to also make the point with the uh, caller said about um, holding these uh, men and women up to such high standards. Um, I think about how the Catholic people, they refer to the Pope as the Holy Father. I think he's called the Holy Father. And I'm I'm saying to myself, as far as the Bible is concerned, I think that's the name that Jesus is given or God himself is given. And to confess your quote-unquote sins to another person for forgiveness. I mean, from my understanding, that's what people in the Catholic Church does. And that, that is indeed putting these people, these men, in the position of God. And, uh, you know, religion is, is, is it's very powerful. And that's it. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and I think um, once we put these men and women, you know, who are who are just plain old human beings, you know, once we put them in that position, then, you know, they, they can do just about anything. They can say just about anything, and a lot of times we'll just fall for a hook, line, and sinker as if we're hearing something from, you know, like a god or the creator or something like that. So I, I agree I'm sorry. <laughs> and then what? And what's doubly sad is that you know, uh, for those who believe in the Bible or, or what have you, it clearly states, you know, that God is saying that these people are not of me. That I didn't send these people. I didn't, you know, do this. But but what these people count on is that they because they are the ones that when you come into their organization, they teach you the tenets of their organization. And a lot of people aren't uh, initially like, uh, um, I guess you could say, uh, schooled in, in the very Bible that um, these people say that they are teaching from. Yeah. So if you don't pick it up yourself and know what's in there yourself, then these uh people who are really not representing, you know, if you, if you will, God, they're misrepresenting, you won't realize that they, they are not, you know, the Holy Father or they aren't, you should not be confessing your sins to another fallible human being. Right. Yeah. Exactly. This is 9325. Can I be heard? Yes. I was wondering what the other callers thought about the church women and the way that they dealt or they're coping, the way that they're coping with the different things that are happening, poverty, racism, sexism, the way they talked about the prostitutes, the way that they uh, talked about the cola when, you know, in, so when the little girls overheard them 
even when they was talking at Aunt Jimmy's funeral, you know, that gossip, like, can anybody speak on that? This is Minnie B. I'd like to respond. And uh, my thoughts about the church women is that uh, they feel that the Bible entitles them to behave in, in such a manner. They don't see. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say they don't see their behavior, the gossiping and mistreatment, as as uh, unholy because they're they're of the church. Right. Um, and I agree as well. I feel like the women they were being um, just like I've noticed a lot of people who who go to church. I'm not gonna well. That was a generalization, but a lot of people in my life um, that go to church, they're reactive and not really proactive. Um, I remember one caller being on the line. He said something. He had an issue with a roommate or something, and the roommate said, you're not going to do anything. All you're going to do is pray, and that's really all it is. Like, they're not really being active, and they're not trying to help this little girl. All they're doing is sitting there talking about her, gossiping about it, rather than try to show her, show her the love that she didn't get and trying to be there for her. They're just sitting around gossiping about her. Grown women gossiping about a child um, that was sexually abused by her father. So, yeah, they're, they're mm-hmm. being reactive and not really proactive. Right. Can I be heard? Mm-hmm. Hello? Can I be heard? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and right, and that that that's so true, and that that's something else that 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 um, you know the Bible speaks to that you're gonna you're gonna have a, all different sorts of people who. Uh, are sitting in the pews, you know, and it it talks about, you know, how you're going to have people who are just attending and they are not um, carrying themselves the way that, you know, that the the scriptures would, would have them carry themselves. They, but yet they'll walk around and say, I am, you know, of the Lord or whatever, and um, and many times, of course, society I think just lumps everyone in into um, the same basket and and say, oh well, you you say you are a Christian or you say you are um, you know a representative of of the church or whatever, and look at you, look at and 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 then the Bible it says you'll know a tree by the fruit that it bears. So if this person is not uh, a Carrying themselves in in the ways that um, the Bible say that a true or real follower of God or, or Christ would, then you can conclude that this person is, as God plays the song, just fronting. <laughs> and um, you know, and, and and so you got a lot of um, fakers. And again, the Bible says that. You got you got all that the wheat and the tare will grow up together, and that God will do the separating. That you're you're going to have people misrepresenting God. They they are misrepresenting organization that they say that they are a part of, even in the secular world. You're going to have all kind of sorts of people who say, you know, for example, I'm I, I believe in what the cows teach, you know, whatever. And everything about their actions is is contrary 
to what um, Gus may represent or Mr. Fuller or Dr. Welsing or, or what have you. And so just like in the secular world, you have it in the, the so-called church world. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think I, I used to go to church a lot. I don't go to church anymore, but for me, and this is like only just you know my personal experience. I think sometimes some of the older women in the church are um, jealous or insecure uh, about some of the younger women in the church because a lot of times there would be times when you know my friends and I would go to church and you know we wouldn't get that warm welcoming feeling from you know some of the older women and I'm I'm not really sure why that was but. I think sometimes a lot of it has to do with jealousy. It could be looks, it could be, you know, youth, it could be it could be a number of things, but I think a lot of times um that boil that boils down to just plain old jealousy. Mm, uh wanted to check one of our other lines, but uh, I think this goes to uh the caller's question about the behavior in the church as well as I think it was Minnie B saying she uh, was seduced by the language and uh, I listened to a lot of Tony well I won't say a lot I listened to quite a few Tony Morrison uh, interviews about the bluest eye and she said that that was a part one of her objectives uh, she says that the story if you want to know what happens in the story she tells you all that on the first two pages like there's no mystery, there's no suspense about what's going to go down. That has already been laid out on the first two pages. So if you are reading, you are reading for the how things happened or because you fall in love with the language. And she says, I hope both happen. And I th- matter of fact, I will just read before I give the Toni Morrison the article that I was referencing about the Soaphead Church character in real life. It's on the New York Times. I put it in the chat room. Retired Horace Mann teacher admits to sex with students. This is from June 23rd, 2012. He said uh, he had this male. He said he had sex with his students, maybe three. I don't know. Crossing boundaries, he said, were not so clear years ago. And he had that same reverence as a teacher at a prestigious elite private boarding school. He said, in quotes, in those days, it was very spontaneous and casual. It did not seem really wrong. Same rationalization. He goes on. There's more in the article, but just that one sentence. If you want to check it out, you can read more. Now, back to Toni Morrison and how you can be seduced with the language. I hope people didn't just skim over this part in the audio. This is on page uh, 124 of the book. She says... Uh, And this is Soaphead Church speaking in retaining the identity of our race. We held fast to those characteristics most gratifying to sustain and least troublesome to maintain the poetry in the words. And it's like, what a profound sentence. I'll even read that one one more time. She's talking about black people in retaining the identity of our race. We held fast to those characteristics most gratifying to sustain and least troublesome to maintain. Consequently, we were not royal, but snobbish, not aristocratic, 
but class conscious. We believed authority was cruelty to our inferiors and education was being at school. We mistook violence for passion, indolence for leisure, and thought recklessness was freedom. We raised our children and reared our crops. We let infants grow and property develop. Our manhood was defined by acquisitions. Our womanhood by acquiescence. And the smell of your fruit and the labor of your days we aboard. Wow. Wow, wow. She speaks truth to the human, to the, to the, the black experience of America. Right, but what gets me is one interview, I think she was saying, she didn't necessarily say that it wasn't relevant to today, but I think she was saying something about uh, maybe the black women's self-esteem or something like that is not the same as it was in the book or something, but wow, her, her work is still definitely relevant. Definitely. And, and speaking of black women in the church, I think that there was several generations, or maybe even, it may be current, I have turned my back on it, but um, that there was a time when, you know, the, the, only, the only so-called power black women could exercise was being in the church, that many women in the South were somebody's maid, and they wore a uniform six days of the week, but on Sunday, that was when, you know, they, they, they had all the finery. They could exercise that, and that the church was maybe the one safe place to uh, pretend that they had any kind of power. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Women's Day, and Founders Day, all that. We were in control because they weren't in control anyplace else. Yeah, I think that that is definitely something that is is still on display, uh, most definitely. I think that line in the passage uh, where yes, so many of them, uh, we were not royal, but snobbish. Uh, we believed authority was cruelty to our inferiors. I think both of those uh, segments, I think they go a long way 
to explaining or to help understand the rampant gossip in the black church and uh, just amongst black people, period, under racism, white supremacy. Uh, I think that's one of the the few ways we feel like we can we can exert some some power uh, over someone else, uh, just talking bad about them and oh, this person. I mean, you hear it all throughout the book uh, where the black females are talking about the black prostitutes, uh, Maginot line, not calling them the correct name, that sort of thing. The prostitutes talking bad about other people, even the males. Uh, you hear it all throughout the book. Um, just people talking bad about other black folks. But were they talking bad about other black folks or were they exercising the oral tradition? Could it be both? <laughs> oh, I don't know how many we talk about reading the newspaper or anything, but that's how this information kind of was they gossiping at the table, or was this their was there uh, this passive aggressive way of uh, alerting each other, keep you keep your daughters away from so and so, or this is what she's going. I, yeah, I think maybe both were going on. I wonder how much of this behavior was actually mimicking what they saw white people doing. I mean, white white people make careers out of and loads of money out of gossiping. They they have gossip columns, gossip magazines, gossip. This, that, and the other. I wonder how much gossiping they would do. You know, since a lot of these black women were in their homes a lot, how much they witnessed. And when you are uh, in, in in a position uh, that we've been in, and and they are, they put themselves up as supreme and doing everything right. So how much more would we be emulating them? Uh, this is the right thing to do. Talk, talk about. I'm, I'm mimicking and imitating what I see. Um, I, I, I'm just wondering. Hello. Um, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes. Um, I just wanted to bring up a quick topic that was a little off topic. Um, is that okay, Gus? It's something that's kind of really important that I wanted to share with everybody. Um, one um, of, um, the issue that I wanted to bring up is that, that well, I was minute, face, I'm facing foreclosure wait a here minute. in Washington. Huh? Oh, I'm sorry. It was a, I, didn't, I mean, if you were asking me a question. Um, yeah, um, um, I didn't know if you heard me. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, it dep- I would like to, because this is our last session on Blue Stars, so I would okay. like to try to spend as much time as possible. Is it is it totally irrelevant to what we're talking about? Um, just a teeny bit, but I'm gonna come back. I'm, I'll be real quick. I promise. I only want to. I'll spend a minute, and it'll be real quick. Okay. I promise. Um, I'm, I'm facing foreclosure here in D.C., and it's something that I was going through for about a couple years now. And the only thing that I wanted to share was that. As long as I was trying to make payments every single month, the bank would not work with me. Once I actually just said, you know what, I'm going to take the money instead of paying every month and put it into a separate account and just save the money 
I allowed that the house went into um I w just went past four months, they put it into foreclosure. That's when they wanted to work with me and I actually got the bank to start working with me. Before then, they would not work with me even though I, they saw that even though I was able to make payments, they wouldn't work with me. Only when I stopped making payments and allowed the house to go into foreclosure that the bank wanted to work with me. So I don't know if anybody else is going through those kind of situations, but I just kind of wanted to put that out there that you're not out there alone. The other thing was that um, one of the other callers brought up um, a Christian. I don't know if most people know that when you say that I'm a Christian, there are six things that goes along with I am a Christian. And it's not that I walk a certain way or I just believe in Jesus Christ. Because most people try to separate um, a Baptist or Southern Methodist from Catholicism, they don't really understand what it means when they say, I am a Christian. And one of those things is that you believe in the infallibility of the Bible, it means that any and everything that's written in the Bible, it's true, no matter what. No matter what the pastor says, if the pastor say it, it is true. So if you don't fully understand the definitions that the Catholic Church says that what it means to be a Christian, then I think people really need to revisit that. And um, lastly, um, Tyler Perry, one of the movies that he put out, um, Medea's Big Family, I don't know if a lot of people saw that, that was the one that had Bow Wow in it. And within the movie, no one could understand why the sister was a B in the whole movie. It's like she hated everybody. She was disrespectful to her mother. She was disrespectful to everybody. And then right before the movie ended, at the end, they finally said the elephant in the room that she was raped. So the whole time, and I think it's something that you brought up too, Gus, even though her mother and everybody went to church and they said just pray about it, they never got the young lady help. So because they never got her help and the family never dealt with the issue as a family, it just festered inside of her until it ate her up inside, and she was just evil to everybody, and everybody knew what was going on. The whole neighborhood knew that she was raped by her uncle, but no one never got her help. They never got the little boy help, so, you know, it just grew up to be a mess. So that's all I wanted to put out, that, that bit of information. Thank you. That that that's one thing about I think a um, something that is with human beings that everybody has an idea about how something is to be represented. I'm sure within the so-called conscious uh, black community or movement, it, you know. Some people say you approach white supremacy or to counter it this way, and some say you do it that way, and some over here say everybody has an idea about how uh, things are to be uh, represented. And, that, and that's, that's the problem, I think, you know, with when you're dealing with human beings. It's um, you're going to have... What, what, like uh, thinking about what Joe from D.C. 
said everybody has six, seven, eight different <laughs> definitions of what a Christian is, and I think Joe would know that, that Paul talked about all these doctrines going out. Some of them even came up from under his teaching and went abroad teaching something different. And uh, that's just unfortunately uh, uh, a dynamic that is uh, being human, that people are a trip, <laughs> and uh, they are going to do their own thing. If they feel like you aren't moving fast enough or you're not approaching it this way, they, they may start out with you, and then they go on and, 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 and do their own thing. You know, and then that's how you have all of these different agendas and, and all are saying I'm working towards, uh, all of them are using the same word. I'm working towards, for example, uh, uh, justice for uh, black people. And you got 50 different million, 50 million different approaches, you know. So I think I the same agree. I'm sorry, I go agree. ahead. I feel like, I was going to say I agree. I feel like um, schools of thought in the conscious community are no different or no better than church denominations. People are like, oh, I'm 5%er, I'm Nuwabian, <laughs> I'm whatever, NOI, I'm this, I'm that. It's the same as being Muslim or Christian or mm -hmm. Buddhist or what have you. It's no different. And unity is the key, I feel like. I mean, I see truth in it all, and that's one thing I do stand on is unity. I know they all have differences, but they all have similarities as well. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's our biggest problem. We can't unite. We always want to branch off and do our, our own separate things. Like, we all need to have some common goal. And, I, and that's, that's why I really oh, respect the uh, the code. Sorry. Because it's supposed to be universal. But go and, ahead. Sorry. And I, I think even with... Now, I'm, I'm not a scholar or anything. Within even, like, the Catholic... Church, you you have this sect who said, oh well, we believe there should be female preachers or, or bishops or whatever. Oh well, we're going to start our own de uh, denomination. Oh well, we feel such and such should be going on, and the big boys, you know, at the top will say, well, no, we don't do it that way. We're going to go and start our own sect, and we're going to be called the uh, uh, women bishop preachers, Baptist, Catholic, first, you know, so and so. And th this is how, whether it's the church, whether it's whatever, this is how, I don't think it's just a, a black thing. I think, because it, it, I often say before we are black, white, this, that, and the other, there are just some dynamics to being a human being. And we as human beings get stuff in our head, and we disagree. And sometimes, you know, we're correct and sometimes we're incorrect. We believe that such and such should go this way and such and such should go that way, and then we we leave, you know, I'm, I'm out of here, you know, or we'll stay and complain or whatever. That's a dynamic that I think is across the board when you're dealing with imperfect beings, black, white, Hispanic, you know, brown, you know, whatever. I'm, I think if you go to any group, we will find some common things in each group. And I think all will say we're not united enough. We're, we're, we're fussing with each other. We're not doing this and that. And we're over here thinking 
you know, these other groups are so united or whatever. It's almost like even the, the single parent, the single person and the married person. The single person may be looking at the married couple and going, mm, I sure wish I was married. And then the married couple looking over there at the single person, whew, sometimes I sure wish I was single. It's 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 like <laughs> we we are just something else, you know. <laughs> it's, it's it's you know. Um, we had one other person join. Sure hang on one second. Hang on one second. We had one person, a uh, new person, join the call. Uh, I can get the switchboard to cooperate. Uh, I think last four digits three three. Take this down three three five eight three three five eight. Did you have a question or comment? Hopefully, we can stick to the book, Tony Morrison's. I came in late, bro. I didn't even hear you reading it. I just came in and started listening to everybody talking. So I thought I'd jump in the conversation. Oh. <laughs> so I missed the part. I missed, I had I had to go work out, bro. You know, I had to stay in shape. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I had, some, I had some things go down. It was crazy. But uh, I have a, uh, I, I got a partner that live out there in Seattle. And uh, still, and he, uh, he's a psychologist or psychiatrist. I think he's a psychologist. Psychiatrist, I mean, he worked in the uh, juvenile jails out there, so we were having a long conversation. So I'm going to try to get him to call in because uh, uh, we got a little different views, but, he, you know, he just don't think that racism and white supremacy <laughs> is in all results. We just think, you know, some of this stuff can be controlled. And I'm, I'm trying to get him to call in and, but he's, uh, he's from D.C., but never heard of Francis Welsick. And I was like, wow, you know. I didn't think that was possible. But uh, I guess it could be. How old is this person? Uh, it's 44. Oh, Lord. Okay. Um, for that person, 44. I would say... Um, hey, man, I'm 42. <laughs> oh, but see, you didn't let me finish. You didn't let me finish. You didn't let me finish. Uh, so you seem to be a little less confused. If it's somebody... Well, he ain't that confused. He ain't that confused, man, you know. Mm. Just that, you know, you just, just need a little nudge in the logic, mm. you know, because he's... He, he, uh, he, uh, not long ago, he, he turned to, to being a Muslim, practicing Muslim. So, you know, there is possibility for, you know, he just needs to be nudged or logic has to be brought in to play he has to face the logic basically like what I did I had to face the logic like the brother earlier said that uh, to be a Christian you mean oh, you have hang to on, hang on one second because we are we are going way deviate and we still got a whole nother segment of bluest eye to get to oh. I want to make sure we have time to exchange views on <laughs> Uh, very important book. Uh, so I would right. say uh, the call in. This would be apropos for tomorrow evening. Dial in if he wants to join your your friend. If he wants to join in, that would be uh, the time, and we could devote a lot of time to that uh, tomorrow. Right. Uh, for the call right. in. Okay. Um, at any rate, uh, back to Tony Morrison, bluest eye. Um, we have a whole nother audio segment to go, uh, so I want to make sure we have adequate time, not just for that to play, but for people to have an opportunity to respond. This is the concluding segment 
Uh, so this should be all she wrote for Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. Uh, I will go ahead and play segment two and then I'll open up everybody's lines again so we can hear feedback. Uh, take notes while it's playing. Take notes. You can remember. I'm sure there'll be some things that will stick out. If you were seduced by the language of uh, Toni Morrison, and I think many readers have been, I would say just stay tuned uh, because, wow, she really puts a uh, incredible bow on this book uh, to wrap things up in an exquisite manner. So I would say just stay tuned. Uh, this program, all of the Bluest Eye study sessions have opened with uh, Thieves in the Night, most de- or formerly Most Deaf, and Taleb Kweli's uh, song from the Black Star album, Marcus Garvey, Homage. Uh, And they made the hook of the song the concluding paragraph or concluding segment from this book. Uh, Pay attention when it pops up and fantasy it was for we were not strong. I'm not saying the whole thing, but you should just your uh, antenna should be up when you get to that segment. And fantasy it was for we were not strong. We were aggressive. When you hear that, really pay attention. You will get another segment where I think she just really breaks down. Um black victims of white supremacy and a lot of our responses to being traumatized terrorized this would be segment two we'll be right back i'll unmute everybody's line when the segment concludes tony morrison's the bluest eye look look here comes a friend the friend will play with jane they will play a good game play jane play How many times a minute are you going to look inside that old thing? I didn't look in a long time. You did, too. So what? I can look if I want to. I didn't say you couldn't. I just don't know why you have to look every minute. They aren't going anywhere. I know. I just like to look. You scared they might go away? Of course not. How can they go away? The others went away. They didn't go away. They changed. Go away, change, what's the difference? A lot. Mr. Soaphead said they would last forever. Forever and ever, amen? Yes, if you want to know. You don't have to be so smarty when you talk to me. I'm not being smarty, you started it. I'd just like to do something besides watch you stare in that mirror. You're just jealous. I am not. You are? You wish you had them? Ha! What would I look like with blue eyes? Nothing much. If you're going to keep this up, I may as well go on off by myself. No, don't go. What do you want to do? We could go outside and play, I guess. But it's too hot. You can take your old mirror, put it in your coat pocket, and you could look at yourself up and down the street. Boy, I never would have thought you'd be so jealous. Oh, come on. You are. Are what? Jealous. Okay, so I'm jealous. See? I told you. No, I told you. Are they really nice? Yes, very nice. Just very nice? Really, truly, very nice. Really, truly, bluely nice? Oh, God, you are crazy. I am not. I didn't mean it that way. Well, what did you mean? Come on, it's too hot in here. Wait a minute, I can't find my shoes. Here they are. Oh, thank you. Got your mirror? Yes, dearie. 
Well, let's go then. Ow! What's the matter? The sun is too bright. It hurts my eyes. Not mine. I didn't even blink. Look, I can look right at the sun. Don't do that. Why not? It doesn't hurt. I don't even have to blink. Well, blink anyway. You make me feel funny staring at the sun like that. Feel funny how? I don't know. Yes, you do. Feel funny how? I told you I don't know. Why don't you look at me when you say that? You're looking drop-eyed, like Mrs. Breedlove. Mrs. Breedlove looked drop-eyed at you? Yes, well, now she does, ever since I got my blue eyes. She looks away from me all the time. Do you suppose she's jealous, too? Could be. They are pretty, you know. I know. He really did a good job. Everybody's jealous. Every time I look at somebody, they look off. Is that why nobody has told you how pretty they are? Sure is. Can you imagine something like that happening to a person and nobody, but nobody says anything about it? They all try to pretend they don't see them. Isn't that funny? I said, isn't that funny? Yes. You are the only one who tells me how pretty they are. Yes. You are a real friend. I'm sorry about picking on you before. I mean, saying you were jealous and all. That's all right. No, really. You are my very best friend. Why didn't I know you before? You didn't need me before. Didn't need you? I mean, you were so unhappy before. I guess you didn't notice me before. I guess you're right. And I was so lonely for friends... And you were right here, right before my eyes. No, honey, right after your eyes. What? What does Maureen think about your eyes? She doesn't say anything about them. Has she said anything to you about them? No, nothing. Do you like Maureen? Oh, she's all right. For a half-white girl, that is. I know what you mean. But would you like to be her friend? I mean, would you like to go around with her or anything? No, me neither. But she sure is popular. Who wants to be popular? Not me. Me neither. But you couldn't be popular anyway. You didn't even go to school. You don't either. I know. But I used to. What did you stop for? They made me. Who made you? I don't know. After that first day at school when I had my blue eyes, well, the next day they had Mrs. Breedlove come out. Now I don't go anymore, but I don't care. You don't? No, I don't. They're just prejudiced, that's all. Yes, they sure are prejudiced. Just because I got blue eyes, bluer than theirs, they're prejudiced. That's right. They are bluer, aren't they? Oh, yes, much bluer. Bluer than Joanna's? Much bluer than Joanna's. Bluer than Michelina's? Much bluer than Michelina's. I thought so. Did Michelina say anything to you about my eyes? No, nothing. Did you say anything to her? No. How come? How come what? How come you don't talk to anybody? I talk to you. Besides me. I don't like anybody besides you.
Where do you live? I told you once. What is your mother's name? Why are you so busy meddling me? I just wondered. You don't talk to anybody. You don't go to school, and nobody talks to you. How do you know nobody talks to me? They don't. When you're in the house with me, even Mrs. Breedlove doesn't say anything to you ever. Sometimes I wonder if she even sees you. Why wouldn't she see me? I don't know. She almost walks right over you. Maybe she doesn't feel too good since Charlie's gone. Oh yes, you might be right. She probably misses him. I don't know why she would. All he did was get drunk and beat her up. Well, you know how grown-ups are. Yeah. No. How are they? Well, she probably loved him anyway. Him? Sure. Why not? Anyway, if she didn't love him, she sure let him do it to her a lot. That's nothing. How do you know? I saw them all the time. She didn't like it. Then why'd she let him do it to her? Because he made her. How could somebody make you do something like that? Easy. Oh yeah. How easy? They just make you. That's all. I guess you're right. And Charlie could make anybody do anything. He could not. He made you, didn't he? Shut up! I was only teasing. Shut up! Okay, okay. He just tried. See, he didn't do anything. You hear me? I'm shutting up. You better. I don't like that kind of talk. I said I'm shutting up. You always talk so dirty. Who told you about that anyway? I forget. Sammy? No. You did. I did not. You did. You said he tried to do it to you when you were sleeping on the couch. See there? You don't even know what you're talking about. It was when I was washing dishes. Oh yes, dishes. By myself in the kitchen. Well, I'm glad you didn't let him. Yes. Did you? Then I what? Let him. Now who's crazy? I am, I guess. You sure are. Still. Well, go ahead. Still what? I wonder what it would be like. Horrible. Really? Yes. Horrible. Then why didn't you tell Mrs. Breedlove? I did tell her. I don't mean about the first time. I mean about the second time, when you were sleeping on the couch. I wasn't sleeping. I was reading. Don't have to shout. You don't understand anything, do you? She didn't even believe me when I told her. So that's why you didn't tell her about the second time. She wouldn't have believed me then either. You're right. No use telling her when she wouldn't believe you. That's what I'm trying to get through your thick head. Okay, I understand now. Just about. What do you mean, just about? You sure are mean today. You keep on saying mean and sneaky things. I thought you were my friend. I am. I am. Then leave me alone about Charlie. Okay. There's nothing more to say about him anyway. He's gone anyway. Yes.
Good riddance. Yes, good riddance. And Sammy's gone, too. And Sammy's gone, too. So there's no use talking about it. I mean them. No, no use at all. It's all over now. Yes. And you don't have to be afraid of Charlie coming at you anymore. No. That was horrible, wasn't it? Yes. The second time, too? Yes. Really? The second time, too? Leave me alone. You better leave me alone. Can't you take a joke? I was only funnin'. I don't like to talk about dirty things. Me neither. Let's talk about something else. What? What will we talk about? Why, your eyes. Oh, yes, my eyes. My blue eyes. Let me look again. See how pretty they are? Yes. They are prettier each time I look at them. They are the prettiest I've ever seen. Really? Oh, yes. Prettier than the sky? Oh, yes. Much prettier than the sky. Prettier than Alice and Jerry's storybook eyes? Oh, yes. Much prettier than Alice and Jerry's storybook eyes. And prettier than Joanna's? Oh, yes. And bluer, too. Bluer than Michelina's? Yes. Are you sure? Of course I'm sure. You don't sound sure. Well, I am. Sure. Unless... Unless what? Oh, nothing. I was just thinking about a lady I saw yesterday. Her eyes sure were blue. But, no, not bluer than yours. Are you sure? Yes, I remember them now. Yours are bluer. I'm glad. Me too. I'd hate to think there was anybody around with bluer eyes than yours. I'm sure there isn't. Not around here, anyway. But you don't know, do you? You haven't seen everybody, have you? No, I haven't. So there could be, couldn't there? Not hardly. But maybe, maybe you said around here. Nobody around here probably has bluer eyes. What about someplace else? Even if my eyes are bluer than Joanna's and bluer than Michelina's and bluer than the lady you saw, suppose there is somebody way off somewhere with bluer eyes than mine. Don't be silly. There could be, couldn't there? Not hardly. But suppose, suppose a long way off, in Cincinnati, say, there's somebody whose eyes are bluer than mine. Suppose there are two people with bluer eyes. So what? You asked for blue eyes. You got blue eyes. He should have made them bluer. Who? Mr. Soaphead. Did you say what color blue you wanted them? No, I forgot. Oh, well. Look, look over there at that girl. Look at her eyes. Are they bluer than mine? No, I don't think so. Did you look real good? Yes. Here comes someone. Look at his. See if they're bluer. You're being silly. I'm not going to look at everybody's eyes. You have to. No, I don't. Please. If there is somebody with bluer eyes than mine, then maybe there is somebody with the bluest eyes. The bluest eyes in the whole world. 
That's just too bad, isn't it? Please help me look. No. But suppose my eyes aren't blue enough. Blue enough for what? Blue enough for... I don't know. Blue enough for something. Blue enough for you. I'm not going to play with you anymore. Oh, don't leave me. Yes, I am. Why? Are you mad at me? Yes. Because my eyes aren't blue enough? Because I don't have the bluest eyes? No. Because you're acting silly. Don't go. Don't leave me. W will you come back if I get them? Get what? The bluest eyes. Will you come back then? Of course I will. I'm just going away for a little while. You promise? Sure. I'll be back. Right before your very eyes. So it was. A little black girl yearns for the blue eyes of a little white girl. And the horror at the heart of her yearning is exceeded only by the evil of fulfillment. We saw her sometimes, Frida and I, after the baby came too soon and died. After the gossip and the slow wagging of heads. She was so sad to see. Grown people looked away. Children, those who were not frightened by her, laughed outright. The damage done was total. She spent her days, her tendril, sap-green days, walking up and down, up and down, her head jerking to the beat of a drummer so distant only she could hear, elbows bent. Arms on shoulders, she flailed her arms like a bird in an eternal, grotesquely futile effort to fly. Beating the air, a winged but grounded bird, intent on the blue void it could not reach, could not even see, but which filled the valleys of the mind. We tried to see her without looking at her, and never, never went near. Not because she was absurd or repulsive, or because we were frightened, but because we had failed her. Our flowers never grew. I was convinced that Frida was right, that I had planted them too deeply. How could I have been so sloven? So we avoided Picola breed love. Forever. And the years folded up like pocket handkerchiefs. Sammy left town long ago. Charlie died in the workhouse. Mrs. Breedlove still does housework. And Pecola is somewhere in that little brown house she and her mother moved to on the edge of town, where you can see her even now, once in a while. The bird-like gestures are worn away to a mere picking and plucking her way between the tire rims and the sunflowers, between Coke bottles and milkweed, among all the waste and beauty of the world, which is what she herself was. All of our waste, which we dumped on her, and which she absorbed. And all of our beauty, which was hers first, and which she gave to us. All of us, all who knew her, felt so wholesome after we cleaned ourselves on her. We were so beautiful when we stood astride her ugliness. Her simplicity decorated us. Her guilt sanctified us. Her pain made us glow with health. Her awkwardness made us think we had a sense of humor. Her inarticulateness made us believe we were eloquent. 
Her poverty kept us generous. Even her waking dreams we used to silence our own nightmares. And she let us, and thereby deserved our contempt. We honed our egos on her, padded our characters with her frailty, and yawned in the fantasy of our strength. And fantasy it was, for we were not strong, only aggressive. We were not free, merely licensed. We were not compassionate. We were polite. Not good, but well-behaved. We courted death in order to call ourselves brave and hid like thieves from life. We substituted good grammar for intellect. We switched habits to simulate maturity. We rearranged lies and called it truth, seeing in the new pattern of an old idea the revelation and the word. She, however, stepped over into madness, a madness which protected her from us simply because it bored us in the end. Oh, some of us loved her, the Maginot line. And Charlie loved her. I'm sure he did. He, at any rate, was the one who loved her enough to touch her, envelop her, give something of himself to her, but his touch was fatal. And the something he gave her filled the matrix of her agony with death. Love is never any better than the lover. Wicked people love wickedly. Violent people love violently. Weak people love weakly. Stupid people love stupidly. But the love of a free man is never safe. There is no gift for the beloved. The lover alone possesses his gift of love. The loved one is shorn, neutralized, frozen in the glare of the lover's inward eye. And now when I see her searching the garbage, for what? The thing we assassinated? I talk about how I did not plant the seeds too deeply, how it was the fault of the earth, the land, of our town. I even think now that the land of the entire country was hostile to marigolds that year. This soil is bad for certain kinds of flowers. Certain seeds it will not nurture. Certain fruit it will not bear. And when the land kills of its own volition... We acquiesce and say the victim had no right to live. We are wrong, of course, but it doesn't matter. It's too late. At least on the edge of my town, among the garbage and the sunflowers of my town, it's much, much, much too late. Afterward. We had just started elementary school. She said she wanted blue eyes. I looked around to picture her with them and was violently repelled by what I imagined she would look like if she had her wish. The sorrow in her voice seemed to call for sympathy, and I faked it for her, but astonished by the desecration she proposed, I got mad at her instead. Until that moment, I had seen the pretty the lovely, the nice, the ugly, and although I had certainly used the word beautiful, I had never experienced its shock, the force of which was equaled by the knowledge that no one else recognized it, not even or especially the one who possessed it. It must have been more than the face I was examining, 
The silence of the street in the early afternoon, the light, the atmosphere of confession. In any case, it was the first time I knew beautiful, had imagined it for myself. Beauty was not simply something to behold. It was something one could do. The bluest eye was my effort to say something about that, to say something about why she had not or possibly ever would have the experience of what she possessed, and also why she prayed for so radical an alteration. Implicit in her desire was racial self-loathing. And twenty years later, I was still wondering about how one learns that. Who told her? Who made her feel that it was better to be a freak than what she was? Who had looked at her and found her so wanting, so small a weight on the beauty scale? The novel pecks away at the gaze that condemned her. The reclamation of racial beauty in the 60s stirred these thoughts, made me think about the necessity for the claim. Why, although reviled by others, could this beauty not be taken for granted within the community? Why did it need wide public articulation to exist? These are not clever questions. But in 1962, when I began this story, and in 1965, when it began to be a book, the answers were not as obvious to me as they quickly became and are now. The assertion of racial beauty was not a reaction to the self-mocking, humorous critique of cultural racial foibles common in all groups, but against the damaging internalization of assumptions of immutable inferiority originating in an outside gaze. I focused, therefore, on how something as grotesque as the demonization of an entire race could take root inside the most delicate member of society, a child, the most vulnerable member, a female. In trying to dramatize the devastation that even casual racial contempt can cause, I chose a unique situation, not a representative one. The extremity of Piccola's case stemmed largely from a crippled and crippling family, unlike the average black family and unlike the narrators. But... Singular as Piccola's life was, I believed some aspects of her woundability were lodged in all young girls. In exploring the social and domestic aggression that could cause a child to literally fall apart, I mounted a series of rejections, some routine, some exceptional, some monstrous, all the while trying hard to avoid complicity in the demonization process Piccola was subjected to, that is, I did not want to dehumanize the characters who trashed Piccola and contributed to her collapse. One problem was centering. The weight of the novel's inquiry on so delicate and vulnerable a character could smash her and lead the readers into the comfort of pitying her rather than into an interrogation of themselves for the smashing. My solution, break the narrative into parts that had to be reassembled by the reader, seemed to me a good idea, the execution of which does not satisfy me now. Besides, it didn't work. Many readers remained touched, but not moved. The other problem, of course, was language. Holding the despising glance while sabotaging it was difficult. The novel tried to hit the raw nerve of racial self-contempt, expose it, then soothe it, not with narcotics, 
but with language that replicated the agency I discovered in my first experience of beauty. Because that moment was so racially infused, my revulsion at what my school friend wanted, very blue eyes and a very black skin, the harm she was doing to my concept of the beautiful. The struggle was for writing that was indisputably black. I don't yet know quite what that is, but neither that nor the attempts to disqualify an effort to find out keeps me from trying to pursue it. Some time ago, I did the best job I could of describing strategies for grounding my work in race-specific yet race-free prose, prose free of racial hierarchy and triumphalism. Parts of that description are as follows. The opening phrase of the first sentence, quiet as it's kept, had several attractions for me. First, it was a familiar phrase, familiar to me as a child listening to adults, to black women conversing with one another, telling a story, an anecdote, gossip about someone or event within the circle, the family, the neighborhood. The words are conspiratorial. Shh, don't tell anyone else, and no one is allowed to know this. It is a secret between us, a secret that is being kept from us. The conspiracy is both held and withheld, exposed and sustained. In some sense, it was precisely what the act of writing the book was, the public exposure of a private confidence. In order to comprehend fully the duality of that position, one needs to be reminded of the political climate in which the writing took place, 1965-69, a time of great social upheaval in the lives of black people. The publication, as opposed to the writing, involved the exposure. The writing was a disclosure of secrets, secrets we shared, and those withheld from us by ourselves and by the world outside the community. Quiet as it's kept, is also a figure of speech that is written in this instance, but clearly chosen for how speakerly it is, how it speaks and bespeaks a particular world and its ambience. Further, in addition to its back-fence connotation, its suggestion of illicit gossip of thrilling revelation, there is also in the whisper the assumption on the part of the reader that the teller is on the inside knows something others do not, and is going to be generous with this privileged information. The intimacy I was aiming for, the intimacy between the reader and the page, could start up immediately because the secret is being shared at best and eavesdropped upon at the least. Sudden familiarity or instant intimacy seemed crucial to me. I didn't want the reader to have time to wonder what do I have to do to give up in order to read this, what defense do I need, what distance maintain? Because I know, and the reader does not, he or she has to wait for the second sentence, that this is a terrible story about things one would rather not know anything about. What, then, is the big secret about to be shared? The thing we, reader and I, are in on? A botanical aberration. Pollution, perhaps. A skip, perhaps, in the natural order of things. A September, an autumn, a fall without marigolds. Bright, common, strong, and sturdy marigolds. 
Wynn, in 1941. And since that is a momentous year, the beginning of World War II for the United States, the fall of 1941, just before the declaration of war, has a closet innuendo. In the temperate zone where there is a season known as fall, during which one expects marigolds to be at their peak, in the months before the beginning of U.S. participation in World War II, something grim is about to be divulged. The next sentence will make it clear that the sayer, the one who knows, is a child speaking, mimicking the adult black women on the porch or in the backyard. The opening phrase is an effort to be grown up about this shocking information. The point of view of a child alters the priority an adult would assign the information. We thought it was because Pecola was having her father's baby that the marigolds did not grow. Foregrounds the flowers, backgrounds elicit traumatic, incomprehensible sex coming to its dreaded fruition. This foregrounding of trivial information and backgrounding of shocking knowledge secures the point of view but gives the reader pause about whether the voice of a child can be trusted at all or is more trustworthy than an adult's. The reader is thereby protected from a confrontation too soon with the painful details, while simultaneously provoked into a desire to know them. The novelty, I thought, would be in having this story of female violation revealed from the vantage point of the victims or could-be victims of rape the persons no one inquired of, certainly not in 1965, the girls themselves. And since the victim does not have the vocabulary to understand the violence or its context, gullible, vulnerable girlfriends, looking back as the knowing adults they pretended to be in the beginning, would have to do that for her, and would have to fill those silences with their own reflective lives. Thus, the opening provides the stroke that announces something more than a secret shared, but a silence broken, a void filled, an unspeakable thing spoken at last. And it draws the connection between a minor destabilization in seasonal flora and the insignificant destruction of a black girl. Of course, minor and insignificant represent the outside world's view. For the girls, both phenomena are earth-shaking depositories of information they spend that whole year of childhood and afterward trying to fathom, and cannot. If they have any success, it will be in transferring the problem of fathoming to the presumably adult reader, to the inner circle of listeners. At the least, they have distributed the weight of these problematical questions to a larger constituency and justified the public exposure of a privacy. If the conspiracy that the opening words announce is entered into by the reader, then the book can be seen to open with its close, a speculation on the disruption of nature as being a social disruption with tragic individual consequences in which the reader, as part of the population of the text, is implicated. However, a problem lies in the central chamber of the novel. The shattered world I built, to complement what is happening to Pecola, its pieces held together by seasons in child time, and commenting at every turn on the incompatible and barren white family primer 
does not in its present form handle effectively the silence at its center, the void that is Pecola's unbeing. It should have had a shape like the emptiness left by a boom or a cry. It required a sophistication unavailable to me and some deft manipulation of the voices around her. She is not seen by herself until she hallucinates a self. And the fact of her hallucination becomes a kind of outside-the-book conversation. Also, although I was pressing for a female expressiveness, it eluded me for the most part, and I had to content myself with female persona because I was not able to secure throughout the work the feminine subtext that is present in the opening sentence, the women gossiping, eager and aghast in Quiet As It's Kept. The shambles this struggle became is more evident in the section on Pauline Breedlove, where I resorted to two voices, hers and the urging narrators, both of which are extremely unsatisfactory to me. It is interesting to me now that where I thought I would have the most difficulty subverting the language to a feminine mode, I had the least, connecting Charlie's rape by the white men to his own of his daughter. This most masculine act of aggression becomes feminized in my language, passive, and I think more accurately repellent when deprived of the male glamour of shame rape is or once was routinely given. My choices of language, speakerly, oral, colloquial, my reliance for full comprehension on codes embedded in black culture, my effort to effect immediate co-conspiracy and intimacy without any distancing, explanatory fabric, as well as my attempt to shape a silence while breaking it, are attempts to transfigure the complexity and wealth of black American culture into a language worthy of the culture. Thinking back now on the problems expressive language presented to me, I am amazed by their currency, their tenacity. Hearing civilized languages debase humans, watching cultural exorcisms debase literature, seeing oneself preserved in the amber of disqualifying metaphors, I can say that my narrative project is as difficult today as it was 30 years ago. With few exceptions, the initial publication of The Bluest Eye was like Pecola's life, dismissed, trivialized, misread. And it has taken 25 years to gain for her the respectful publication this edition is. Princeton, New Jersey, November 1993. The End You've been listening to The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, narrated by Lynn Thigpen. If you've enjoyed this book and this performance, Recorded Books is pleased to offer many of the books of Toni Morrison, all narrated by Lynn Thigpen. You'll find a wide selection of titles in the Recorded Books catalog, including bestsellers, mysteries, classics, histories, and more. So to order another recorded book, or for a copy of our latest listing, please call us using the toll-free number found on the back of the book. You can order by phone with any major credit card, or by writing to us, or by faxing us. Don't forget to ask about easy 30-day rentals by mail. On our website, you can browse the catalog, 
hear about the latest releases, place orders, or tune into narrator profiles and author interviews. So visit us there at www.recordedbooks.com. And thank you for being a Recorded Books reader. Context of White Supremacy Wow, we <clears throat> I will hit the phone lines. I'll give out the number again in case folks want to dial in to share any thoughts they might have on the conclusion of the bluest eye. The number again is seven six zero five six nine seven six seven six and the code is five six four nine four three pound. Uh press star six if you dial that line and you have uh, questions. Uh, if you're on the talk shoe line, it would be star eight. One of the listeners in the chat room reminded me, uh, no coincidence, the program immediately preceding this broadcast, a black male, Baye McNeil, and his book, Hi, my name is Loco, and I am a racist where he opens that book talking about how his self-esteem has been sodomized being a black male in Japan for the last eight years. Two thousand twelve Blue Sky is still very relevant in my opinion. Uh the folks who dialed in before, uh, who had a hand up, your lines are all open. Anybody else I'll be on the lookout. So Mini B should be with us. Bruce Fine. Um caller at three three five eight um three five nine zero and nine three two five. Your lines are all open. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, ma'am, maybe I'm I'm mistaken, but it, it seems like the uh, parts tonight and maybe the last part last Friday seems like they were rife with um, the pedophilia aspect. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm wondering if any if 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 there was a, a reasoning for that or just she desi- decided to wait until um i guess almost the end of the book to to bring that in or maybe i'm mistaken i was just wondering if anyone else noticed that i think it's a big part of the the climax um mm. being more detailed about it but i know soped church is referenced very early in the book um i think when Mr. Henry, when he molests, um, I'm forgetting either Frida or uh, Claudia, um, they already bring up that Soped Church. It seems the children, they know that he's a pedophile. Um, and so you already get some foreshadowing about him and what he's about. Uh, and then you also you have that incident with Mr. Henry doing it. So I think the pedophilia is there. It's uh, unfortunately, I think it's there. I think it just 
becomes greatly amplified at the end of the book. And I think she just, as she said, you know, it's it's on the front page, or I think it's in the first couple pages of the book where they say, you know, Nicola's father uh, had sex with her uh, and got her pregnant. So I think it's it's kind of there. It just becomes more explicit in going into the details about everything in the last, I think, the last two weeks that we've been discussing it. Okay. Hello, can I be heard? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I just wanted to, uh, what, what stood out to me in, in this, uh, this uh, past uh, session just played is uh, when uh, she was, uh, when, I don't know, it might have been Toni Morrison uh, when she was saying, Oh no. Um, well, there was a line in there where she said all of our waste were washed and dumped on 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 her. I guess they were talking about Coca-Cola and how they were they were saying how um, they they felt like prettier when they were sitting next to her ugliness and how they felt smarter because she wasn't as articulate. As they were, you know, and I think that stood out to me. And just made me uh, um, think about how um, it almost seemed like they used her as a, um, um, you know, how I, I I don't know. I think it was the last session when 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 she was saying, um, how come I didn't notice you before, and she was saying, well, because. You didn't need me, and and I, I I guess what I'm trying to get at is that um, everybody used Pocola as as a uh, as a way to feel you know to um, vent out their uh, frustration, their anger, and their uh, and also their aggression, and um, it, it was it was very um, the way that. Um, uh, Tony Morrison uh, uh, wrote it. It was it was very it was very masterfully done, you know. And how every everyone sort of like um, um, more or less w- were um, somehow um, were somehow like not related, but like somehow. Where um, Pocola was like a part of, you know, of everybody's, you know, either uh, 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 you know, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be quiet because I, I need to gather uh, my thoughts. Uh, but those were the things that stood out to me. That's all I have to say. I, it, if I'm understanding it, it seems like the caller is saying that Pecola seems to have been the target for everyone's anti-black aggression, um, and I, and and if that's true, I think it, it goes to that the name again, the. 
Pepsi, uh, Coca-Cola, Dark, um, that she just, she received so much um, abuse, physical, verbal, emotional, and psych- and ultimately, you know, psychological. Yeah, it's, it's as if, like, she she was, like, that dumping ground, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. where everybody dumped everything, you know, that everything that they didn't like about themselves or or any kind of, you know, uh, problems that they were going through. Like, they dumped it all on her, and she was just a little kid, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, um, yeah, it was just, it was almost, almost un- unbearable to, uh, you know, to, um, uh, listen, listen to it, you know, but, um, yeah, uh, another great selection of, 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 um, of books, uh, that's all I had to say. And I think also just like, uh, 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 Loco, uh, what is his name, Gus, McNeil? Mc, uh, McNeil. Baye McNeil. Um, how the one Japanese lady um, was able to come in and uh, soothe his uh, pain. Um, it, just, it just took one, and I'm thinking with Pacola, um, I'm thinking if one white person had come in and told her she was beautiful, that would have nullified and voided out probably every everything that had been done or said to her by uh, black people. Uh, I think of uh, the gymnast Gabrielle Douglas, and um, uh, from what was being told to us by the media, a couple of uh, black people said something about her hair, and then you have white people come in and, oh, God, how could they say that she's she's so beautiful? Where would they get that, you know, where would they get that from? Why are they treating her like that? And, you know, and, and I, I often think they cause us to hate ourselves. And then when we demonstrate our self-hatred that they put in us. Then they come along and pretend to not know where this came from, why are we acting this way, blaming it on us. It's like I hear white people say, I I wonder why black people uh, live by this uh, one-drop rule. Why do they do that? (laughs) And, you know, it's like they come in and do this thing, this as Bill Maher says, new rule, we've changed our mind. Uh, uh, now we're going to say that the one dropper, and we're all messed up behind it. And then they move on and pretend like they they have no idea why we are acting this way. It's amazing. And then they come in and give, as that guy said, the soothing lotion. Can I be here? Yes, sir. I would like to pose another question to the callers concerning Pacola. Can anybody 
describe how Pacola looked because uh, her perception of herself was ugly and what most everyone else, the other characters in the book said that she was ugly, but, you know, what was that in the eye of the beholder? Uh, we didn't get a real description of how Pacola looked. She may not have been ugly, just maybe, you know, a dark-complected young child. Because the reason why I say this is I don't know what edition that I have of the book, but my book is purple with a little girl on the front with a hat. And to me, that little girl is not ugly. So I don't know if that's supposed to be the cola or not, but I was just wondering if, if anyone else, you know, came up with that conclusion because we didn't get a description of the cola. It's just what other people perceived her to be. And, you know, like I say, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, so we would just have to assume that, you know, she was ugly. And in that particular uh, time, then the darker-skinned individuals would not have represented uh, uh, beauty. Yeah. And I think that would have been a misnomer. You you said just what I was getting ready to say. The fact that she was, if you know, if she was dark-skinned, that was enough back then, I guess, for her to be labeled as ugly. I I think, if I, I'm remembering correctly, Sophie called her pitifully ugly. So if even if she was not ugly, to constantly be called ugly, I think you will automatically think there is something wrong with me. I, everyone is calling me ugly. Yeah. It's just like the society will say, you know, black women, if they're not a size three, you're fat. Exactly. I was, I think, in my final comments, I think that the community represents is is sort of a a microcosm of the world or the black community, you know, and then the characters represent the way that different black people respond to racism or white supremacy. And also I wanted someone to comment on the uh, and see if I'm on the right track as far as internalized racism and uh, institutionalized racism. And if someone can explain to me the difference. We have... Uh little less than 15 minutes left, so the other folks that are 
on the line. I don't want to be waiting till the last minute and then everybody deciding they want to speak. So all the other people that are on the line, uh, feel free to share while we still have time. Um, see, so I'm, is it that nobody has any comments or any response to uh, the mail caller's question? Um, see, so that would be Mini B three three five eight three five nine zero, and I'm assuming that might have been the the mail that called. Uh, could, you, could you place that question again? Okay. Which which question was it? I thought she already answered it. Was the, was the girl ugly? Was that the girl on the on the cover? Is that what the question was? I thought he had a follow up. The mail caller. Are you still with us, sir? Not hearing you. Don't know if he it is mute line. I thought he was still uh, still on the line. Oh, can I be heard? Oh, okay, can we I can hear. Yes, sir. Okay. The I was saying that it seemed like the community was a microcosm of the collective uh, black community, and that there were was a correlation between internalized racism and institutionalized racism and if someone could speak on that and about the difference in the two and if they saw the same thing in the novel mm -hmm. I would have to reflect on that a little bit more uh, yeah um, that internalized racism hmm. Is that is that like um, uh, um extending your own hatred upon another person? Uh, because of their the darker uh, because they're darker skin is that what you when you say internalized racism? Uh, the way racism. Uh, affected you or the individual person uh, individual you know how you you know some people in other words if, if they experience racism and uh, like in, in other words Pecola the people saying that she was ugly and then she internalized the fact that she was ugly so that by having blue eyes, then would make her more attractive. So in that that aspect, then maybe, you know, we as black people 
collectively in the United States of America, so-called, you know, internalize these perceptions, you know, that we're given of ourselves. So I may be incorrect. Well, I, because what I'm... Go ahead, Yes. Yes. I was going to say that, well, that's what the uh, Pam, the Trojan Horse, and the Beauty Con game is all about. That that black people in America are bombarded with messages we do it to ourselves about, you know, our our hair is not right, our armpits stink, our nails aren't. Uh, long enough, uh, you know, there's just nothing right about blackness. And I think that when Toni Morrison wrote this in 1962, is that correct? Uh, I think it was published in 1970, although she said she had been working on it for some years before that. Right. But that, that 1962 was, and that era was when Madison Avenue and the orchestrated um, commercialization of, and packaging of what is beautiful and who is beautiful and who isn't and who's invisible. I, I think, think that she wanted to be... Pardon? I think she was working to be visible to people. And she probably thought... Uh, her blue eyes would bring her visible, uh, make her visible. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was so wrapped up in her own self of trying to be visible to people that uh, she didn't uh, see her so-called friend. And I'm, I'm still kind of stuck on that part where her friend was questioning her about the her uh, sec- this sexual encounter as though she had become promiscuous. Or that she had some fantasies of her own. Uh, But I don't know. I got to listen to it again. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm kind of a nigger, and I I need to listen like three or four times to get it (laughs) sometimes. You did not seem kind of a nigger, did you? (laughs) <laughs> yes, I am kind of a, I'm kind of hard-headed. Sometimes it don't get through the first time, so I got to really listen sometimes. I was thinking I, of, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. I just want to say I'm I'm reminded of a guest that Gus had some time ago on the program, a, a, an Asian doctor. And I think he's a plastic surgeon. And if I'm recalling the interview, he spoke of how so many Asian people come in to have their eyes, what they would call Europeanized or Westernized, Mm -hmm. and how his father, all he wanted to do is get to America and get and live around white people and I think the doctor 
said that he didn't, when he was in college, he didn't want to be around his own people. He wanted he wanted to be around white people, and I think he ended up marrying a white woman. I I think I read that Asian American men, not black men, are the uh, ones who, um, number-wise, who marry uh, white women more than any other, uh, quote-unquote, minority. Um like with Gus's definition of racism, white supremacy, it is a worldwide, global system that is geared towards harming, abusing any and everyone whom they don't consider white. And, that is, and, and, and it is making everyone who they don't consider white feel that there is something wrong with them, that they are not quite right, not like I think the Asian community are right up there with the black community with the bleaching cream. You know, this this thing is in all of our heads, and I wish sometimes that we would see that cuz sometimes i think we we speak as if black people are reacting strangely uniquely distinctively from every other people of color and it 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 it, it our reaction is a quote unquote normal reaction that everybody who has been subjugated abused marginalized and told that if you are not white, there is something wrong with you from head to toe. And everybody is bleaching, blonding their hair, looking. I, I happened to see um, a little bit of the Olympics today, and they had, I think it was Korea, the soccer team Korea again, uh, versus uh, Japan, I think. And a lot of the guys had blonde hair. The Korean, I think one of them, the Asian, you know, had blonde hair. <laughs> it is, it is a a system that is anti-color, anti-not white, and I think we are reacting like any other victim of racism, the global system of racism, white supremacy. We want they wanted blue eyes, the Asians want non slanted eyes. <laughs> yeah. But the difference is is that the Asians who have they who have their eyes uh their eyes opened or widened or are westernized is that they have have been able to um achieve some success in doing it. That they in their own in their own communities that they have achieved some some success in do, in behaving like that, or else why would they do it? Right, but it's I mean it's I mean we may call it success, but it's it's at the the price of um, erasing yourself and, and making yourself more 
white. And and I mean that's what victims do. They don't they don't want this abuse. They don't want so you know now there are Asians who don't do it. You know Are you, are you and, saying that there are Asians who uh who don't get their eyes widened are are being abused. The Japanese people who who don't get their eyes widened are being abused. I I I think we're all a a, a victim of uh, racist abuse. I think I think I'm just saying I think some respond and, and we respond in various manners. But I'm sorry. Go ahead, guys. Uh, Triumph 3000, join the line. Uh, did you have something you wanted to get in as well? Uh, yeah, I had just, I wanted to chime in on um, the other caller's question. And uh, when I walked away from the story, uh, feeling like, um, I do, I do feel like the word microcosm is a good word to use. I guess I felt like it wasn't the community that was necessarily for me, it wasn't the community that was a microcosm. I think that the the character of Pacola herself is a microcosm for um, what takes place with us as a community. And then when you step outside of Pacola, the other various characters that are abusing and um, basically taking their frustrations out on Pacola, I think that they're they're almost metaphorically, I think that they can be used as metaphors for white supremacy. I think on another, it was another broadcast where we were talking about the uh, the little boy who had, you know, tricked her into the house. And it came off to me like metaphorically in that moment, that little boy sort of took on the role of what white supremacy does, like how it operates. And I think that each character that abuses Pacola is almost metaphorically like um, they take on the role or the persona of the white supremacist. But at the same time, I think it's also symbolic with, with what the caller was asking. I think that it's also symbolic of um, the effects of internalizing racist think or racist thought. So, I mean, I think that the, the way that the book unfolds, the way that the story is told, I think that Toni Morrison, I mean, I can't tell if she's doing this on purpose, if it was a purposeful or if it wasn't, but I think that it's ingenious the way that you can use these various terminologies and it fits either way. At the three-hour mark, anybody, uh, any of the folks that are on the line who hadn't shared anything or had a uh, final word that they wanted to get in on uh, Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye? Oh, can I also say that I meant to mention that um, the the person narrating the story, Lynn Thigpen, I think that she did an excellent job. I listened to um, I listened to the Tar Baby audio book as well. I think she's narrating that, and I think that her, I mean, it really brought the light 
you know, the benefits of having, like, a professional actress step into these various roles and read the book. I mean, I think she did an excellent job. I mean, I know that she's passed on, but I just wanted to mention that. I, I agree. I always thought it was Tony uh, narrating. It was excellent. I loved it, too. And I wanted to ask Gus if he's uh if he read Tar Baby and if he's listened to that audiobook. I just I mean, I'm just now getting familiar with Toni Morrison, but I just listened to Tar Baby and I mean it was some profound moment of dialogue in that book that reminded me of Millie Fuller, it reminded me of the cows, it reminded me of codification, it just that was interesting. I just wondered if Gus had uh, read that. I have not. I have not. I don't think I've heard anybody even mumble the word about that book since uh, since I was in school, but I haven't read it, no. Well, Lynn Thigpen is narrating that as well on the audiobook version, and I mean, you talking about um, it, it's just so interesting because it's a, it's a character in, in that story that I feel like has his you know, he has his own brand of codification. And I mean, it is, it, it's, some profan, it's some profound moments that's just going to make you definitely think of Neely Fuller. I mean, I think it's even one period and point in time where he says blatantly, uh, black people are not supposed to do personal things with white people. Sit down and have eat, have sex, have com- I mean it was it's, it's interesting. I think you would enjoy it if you do get a chance to check it out. Let me know what you think. Wow, that is fascinating. <laughs> I will uh, I will make an effort to see if I can get my hands on uh, the audio book. Um, yeah, I will do that. If it's Toni Morrison, it shouldn't be too difficult to find. She's pretty she's pretty popular. So yeah, I'll make a make an effort to see if I can get my hands on it. And let me know. I can send it to you. I have it. Oh, right on. I will let you know if I have any difficulties finding it. I was just going to say that um, this, uh, that I am reminded of Oprah Winfrey. And when Oprah Winfrey talks about her life story and if any women who or anybody who has sort of followed or been an Oprah fan all the years, uh, but she talks about her life and that, and she talks about being a, a, an ugly child until a white teacher, it was a white teacher that called her a pretty little girl that uh, turned her around. And, uh, and in the close of the story, that's what um, it really did remind me of Oprah Winfrey's life that she's been willing to talk about in public. Hmm. Uh, just what I said a few moments ago, if if a white person had told Tacola she was beautiful, it would have wiped out, probably wiped out every negative thing that, you know, that was said to her by um, black people. Mm -hmm. 
or or I I think also a non-white non-black people person. Uh, I think they have a lot of uh, influence on us as well. Are you going to? Um, are you going to? Are you going to discuss the next? Um, the next read. Or, Can you say that one more time? Were you going to discuss the next um, selections, reading selections? Um, we can we can vote. Um, I had three books that uh, I thought would be cool to kind of look at next we could pick from those three i guess tar baby we can tony morrison theme we can add that to the mix as well um 2000 seasons just because that's also in my top five list of books that i've read all time and other people have also suggested that we do 2000 seasons although that means a lot less now because people suggested that we do urugu and then i feel like a lot of people who suggested it did not participate or at least they didn't actively keep up with the reading so that they could participate uh with that one but i know 2000 seasons is one but that is a difficult book i'll just you know make sure i'm truthful about that difficult book i don't have an audio book to that so that's when we would have to read and and call in to uh you know dialogue about um turner diaries William Pierce, a uh, white man suspected racist as i said Timothy McVeigh was giving these books away uh many overtly racist white people love this book um it is kind of a depiction of things becoming chaotic in the system of white supremacy it's a little longer but i have the audiobook of this so this is another one where you could you know we could just tune in same way we did with bluest eye um uh, i don't want to mispronounce the first name achibe who did things fall apart he also did another book talking about black people going through the british ed- uh, education system um female listener recommended it i got that on audiobook as well uh so those were the four that i was thinking uh we could kind of vote people can be thinking uh which one they would like to go next i have that on audio the only one i don't have an audiobook to is 2000 seasons so that's the only one that you know we would have to do the reading and then chime in and participate and what have you and actually prepare for the program the others i have audiobooks for so we could just tune in and listen and comment as we go same way we did with tony morrison so if you all have opinions i know bruce fine she gave her vote for turner diaries uh if you all have a vote what you would like to to do next let me know although i will say even if the votes piled up for 2000 seasons i would have an incredulous eye just because i'd be thinking that's another one people would start reading and go oh man this is a tough read uh this is not you know the easiest thing for me to come home after a tough day on the plantation and try to get into uh this book it is it is fast i will it's on my top five one of the best books i've ever read and i would say for anyone struggling with that white chip and religion white jesus it is when i read that book the first time it was like someone taking the bible and stomping on it with muddy boots uh just ah get that out of there you don't need that if you're a black person um but it's not an easy read it's not an easy read I have a quick question about uh, the passage um, that was uh, that you prayed. Um, uh, Toni Morrison, when she was um, um, 
you know, doing the outro, she said, love, I think she said, lover is, the lover is never better than the love, or love is never better than the lover. I'm not sure which one, which order it was. What, what, what did she mean by that? I, I didn't quite understand. And she also said that wicked people uh, love wickedly, and, and uh, I don't know. It, it kind of seemed like she was kind of like uh, all over the place with that. I don't know. Let's see. I'll see if I can pull up the uh, passage here so we can all hear it. Um, this is what I mean. People wait till we get to the end of the program and then decide they have a lot of questions and things that they want to chat about. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, I did want to get in because it seemed like there was some confusion. Um, that conversation that Pacola is having uh, towards the end with the other female about her blue eyes and you're not going to leave and, and you don't think there's anybody with blue eyes. She is talking to herself. That is her make believe friend. So she is not talking to another. That's why I was saying in the chat room, like this is hard to listen to, like just hearing how a victim has just wandered off into, you know, in San Loco in Japan. I was saying this is hard to listen to. And the listener was saying, oh, I think it's funny. And I was like, well, she's not really talking. And I was thinking some people probably are not getting that she's talking to herself. Uh, so, yeah, maybe yeah, that's if, where my confusion was at. OK, yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. Maybe. Uh, that cleared up a lot of stuff for me. Yeah, maybe give another listen and just keep that in mind when you get to that part. She is talking to herself. This is a make-believe Fred. Even the line where she says, uh, how come you weren't here before? And I think she says something to the effect of, you didn't need me before. Um, Kind of cluing you in. Uh, Anywho, all right. So let's see. I'll see if I can get the line where she's talking about the... Okay. This is at the end here. Uh, some of us love Pecola, the Magino line, Magino line, uh, and Kali loved her. I'm sure he did. He, at any rate, was the one who loved her enough to touch her, envelop her, give something of himself to her. But his touch was fatal, and the something he gave her filled the matrix of her agony with death. Love is never any better than the lover. Wicked people love wickedly. Violent people love violently. Weak people love weakly. Stupid people love stupidly. But the love of a free man is never safe. There is no gift for the beloved. The lover alone possesses his gift of love. The loved one is shorn, neutralized, frozen in the glare of the lover's inward eye. Um, I Well, I won't say I think. Uh, at least when I read it, the part where she's talking about how people love uh, and to the degree that they've been damaged, that'll be reflected in the way that they reach out to care for other people or attempt to reach out to other people. Um, I think when people, the kind of, it's almost a cliche now hurt people, hurt people. That's what it makes me think of. If you've been damaged in some way, that's going to be reflected in the way that you extend yourself to other people. Um, and I think as she goes on, I think that word free, 
Uh, she spent a considerable, well, I won't say a considerable, but I thought it was a significant passage. I think last week, I might be wrong, maybe it was two weeks ago, but I think it was last week when she was talking about uh, Charlie Vreela, Pacola's father, and saying that he was a dangerous man because he was free. Uh, and she talked about how he had killed three white people and he had done this and, you know, he could he could do whatever at this point. It was, I think, kind of when she was given more background uh, around him going in to to rape his daughter. And in my view, it's that term free. What do we talk about when we say free? Uh, when she says, uh, but the love of a free man is never safe. What do we mean? We say free, especially in this context. Uh, in terms of why the love of a free person, once I'm thinking Charlie is the last person that we talked about being a free person uh, and the love that Charlie Bree love gave not being safe and he himself being a dangerous person. Um, also, it, it makes me. This whole passage here, there's no gift for the beloved. The lover alone possesses his gift of love where this what we're calling love here. That's another word that gets thrown around love and free um, where it's not really anything that is going to be of benefit uh, to the person that is quote unquote love. The person who's getting anything out of this is going to be the, the lover, not the target of this quote unquote love. And I think that plays out frequently uh, for black people, especially uh, under racism, white supremacy, where, a person will do something really, really bad. I'd say, well, I did it because I loved you. I uh, think it, it for me, it all goes to being in this really sick, warped environment where you're not really able to love. You're not really able to be. You're not able to express it correctly. You're not able to be, quote unquote, free. So all of these feelings, all of these emotions just get warped. Uh, and it just becomes damaged. It, exactly what she said. Wicked people love wickedly. When you've been damaged by racism, white supremacy, that's frequently going to be manifested in the way that you reach out to other people. And I think that's to me, that makes sense because this is at the conclusion of the book. And I think that's what she's evidenced throughout the book. Victims of racism reaching out to other victims in a really damaged and perverted way. Uh, even people that they say that they love, quote unquote, or say that they have some feelings for. And maybe they do. I think she even says that. I think uh, Charlie Bree Love did love Pecola, but his love is only expressed in a really wicked and perverse way because he, too, has been so damaged. He rapes his daughter. He's been raped. She said that in the afterward, the incident with the flashlight, she describes it as a rape. I think we talked about that last week. He's been raped. That's the only way that he can reach out by raping someone. That's how he expresses or attempts to express some sort of affection. Uh, even uh, Pauline and Kali fighting their whole relationship. They'll be in bed for a little while and, and can't even express that tenderness and that I need your touch, but they have no problem fighting. Even it seems look forward to their brawls and fighting with one another and the children getting involved. That's uh yeah, I feel like I'm being a little long winded. That's what it seems to, to be conveying to me. If that makes sense, if it doesn't make sense, feel free. I don't want to spend wearing overtime. So if it doesn't make sense, if somebody else, you know, has a different interpretation and you can state it briefly, feel free. Nah, nah, it makes sense. Uh, thank you for clarifying, uh, clarifying that up. I, I guess when she, when I was listening to the past, I might, I might have missed uh, a few uh, uh, one of the sentences, and that's probably why I was you know, thinking she was all over the place. But yeah, it makes sense. Thank you. 
we'll bring it up tomorrow about the uh, the next book. If we're doing 2000 seasons, I assume that would be something we would need to decide on pretty quick. Um, today, tomorrow, you all can leave a note. You can email me or leave a note on Facebook or we, we maybe can come to a conclusion about it tomorrow uh, for the compensatory call in which books we will do next. Uh, if it's 2000 seasons, I would assume people would need to get a book and get cracking uh, if we're going to do that one and be ready for next Friday. Uh, if we're doing one of the audio books, then that would be less prep time. We just have to show up and be prepared to roll whichever book we're going to choose. But think on it. Bruce Fine has already uh, confirmed her vote for Turner Diaries. Uh, other folks can uh, let me know which one they would prefer to do. Tar, but we can throw Tar Baby in the mix as well. Um, I'll get to see if I get the audio book. So we'll have three audio books to pick from and one hard copy book to pick from uh, for our next selection. But we'll be doing something next Friday, white people permitting. Um, before we uh, wrap things up, I also wanted to make sure. Uh, I actually wanted to make sure. Uh, oh, we have two votes for Turner Diaries. I hadn't looked at the chat room. So there are two votes for Turner Diaries. Uh, two votes for Turner Diaries. Um, There's three votes for Turner Diaries. Three votes. Uh oh. <laughs> okay. Three votes for Turner Diaries. All right. Um, what's the What's the other one? Cut. One vote for Tar Baby. One for Tar Baby. Okay. Uh, it was Tar Baby. That's a Tony Morrison. Turner Diaries. White person. William. Another vote for Turner Diaries. Turner Diaries. I'll vote for Turner Diaries. Okay. Right That's now. Gus, uh, excuse me, Gus. That that was me, uh, Bruce, in the uh, chat room. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, I got it. She wanted to make sure she was heard. Okay, got it. Um, what chat room? It's uh, it's on TalkShoe. It's just a different call ID. The call ID is one two two six eight nine. One. One two two six eight nine. Okay. Um, yeah, it'll be, it should be up tomorrow, white people permitting for the call in, but, uh, okay. So I'll, it looks I, I just want to just say about the Turner Diaries that, that, um, uh, that book has international implications for worldwide, um, uh, for global terrorism, racist terrorism, and that, you know, victims who listen to the cows in, um, other parts of the world will, I, I think, um, will be able to relate also to uh, that information. I would agree. I would agree. Anders Breivik, I mean, it's <laughs> lots of folks. Mm-hmm. Golden Dawn in Greece, the... Uh, English Defense League, I think uh, white people worldwide uh, are kind of on a similar page uh, with sentiment that's in Turner Diary. And I think Turner Diary is at least the version that I have is narrated by the author. Uh, and he gives a little blurb at the beginning of it talking about he wrote this book a while ago and changes and things that he's seen since it came out and why it is more prescient now than before. But I think the the author actually does the narration for the audiobook version that I have. So if that means anything to anybody. Um but yeah, we'll come to a conclusion about this hopefully by tomorrow and see which one we will be doing next. I think Turner Diaries is a little bit long. We might be on this for 
a while. Like I, I haven't uh, listened to it yet. I just downloaded it and thought it would be cool to to share or read on my own at some point. But it is kind of long. I think we might be on Turner Diaries for uh, more than a month or I know we'll be doing this for more than a month. If we do this one, it'll probably ride into maybe even October. It's pretty it's like eight CDs. It's pretty long. Anywho, um, I did want to uh, make sure I got in. I made time to watch Imitation of Life uh, this week because uh, I just thought it was significant. The fact that this book, it calls attention to Pecola's name and said, oh, wow, your name sounds like Piola in Imitation of Life. And for me, I mean, that would be double highlight uh, when the book has called called out the film, the character, the whole nine uh, and saying, hey, your name sounds like such and such. Uh, I just thought it would be a benefit to see Imitation of Life. Whoa, uh, I would definitely encourage anyone check out Imitation of Life. Uh, I, it's been a while since I saw the 1934 version. I've seen the 1959 version a couple times. That's the one that I watched this week. Or I guess you could get the book. Um, wow, wow, wow. I almost made some sound clips that would have, boop, you could have plopped them right in uh, to open up for Bluest Eye. I mean, whoa, I see a lot of similarities between Pacola and Piola. If you watch the 1955-59 version, her name is not Piola. They changed it to Sarah Jane, but it's the same story, same character. I don't know why they changed the name. Anyway, um, she just, I mean, wow. <laughs> the I don't want to go into imitation of life. All I can say is just that title is symbolic even of itself. Why would they name it imitation of life? Uh, when the main, the gist of the story is you have a non-white female who has a black parent. They don't ever disclose any information about the father. They just leave that as a question mark. But the offspring is able to pass as a white person. And so she does this repeatedly. Uh, that's her whole ambition is to be white. And she just has some, oh, met the scene that I was going to clip. I think the black mother is reading a story to her daughter who can pass for white and her best friend who is a white person she's reading them both a story they're both i'll say 10 uh she's reading them this story and the non-white child who can pass for white says well what color is god and the other child says yeah what color is god what color is god and I'm just waiting to see the answer that's going to come from this. And I, I think one of the parents, they try to get around it to be like, oh, you know, God is not on blah, blah, blah. And uh, the children are just like, please, God is a white man. He's got to be a white man. You see the picture. He's got blue eyes and white hair. God is a white man. And then you can just see the impact and how this goes into the brain computer. I mean, it is it is fascinating. And I can see the implications. This film was very they made it twice very popular film it was a book i'm quite sure and this was before you had eight thousand television channels so i mean if you can imagine 60 years ago this was probably a major film that a lot of black people saw had a big impact i'm quite sure tony morrison saw this film read the book and it factored into her thinking about the character pacola i see so many similarities in this non-white child who can pass for white in imitation of life i mean it was like she would have clawed her mother's eyeballs out if that means you can be on the white team 
Mom, you are about to get clawed to death. If that means I can be accepted as a white person and I could see the same thing happening with Pecola. It is. Wow. I would just if you want to get any more information or if you want to continue with this and get more insight into, you know, some of the factors that influenced it. I would say check out Imitation of Life, the book, the film, both. It's on YouTube. It's easily available. Probably got it at your library. Imitation of Life. Wow. You'll, uh, wow. Just leave it at that. Gus, excuse me. Um, there's like a, a male version of that. I, I can't remember the name of it, but his parents are, are black, but he can pass for white. And he has, and it's, it, it's something. I, I sent you um, a link to it um, in the email some time ago, but I cannot remember um, the name of it. And that, that film is, is really sad as well. Is it The Human Sting? Uh, I, I can't recall. Anthony Hopkins? No, it's, it's not Anthony. Anthony Hopkins isn't in it. Oh, okay. That one's pretty close, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> Nicole Kidman, Anthony Hopkins, a lot of similar uh, similar scenes in those two. Um, Human Stain is a newer version. Anywho, uh, as we're way over, we'll be back tomorrow. You all can think if you didn't get, if you're still thinking about which book that you would like to do next, you can think about it. Tune in tomorrow. We'll be back. Uh, same uh, time you can tune in Black Talk Radio Network or you can listen white people permitting you can listen at talk you one two two six eight nine one two two six eight nine you can use the same Earl the tiny Earl tiny dot CC forward slash R W S W J it'll take you to the updated uh, cows page that works now if you use the tiny dot CC forward slash R W S W J it'll take you to the current page for uh, the program and of course the free hd line same line same number all that nothing changed anywho we'll be back tomorrow thank you everybody for tuning in Uh, i would encourage folks get tony morrison's book uh, or get the audio book and listen to it again on your own to really digest it Uh, i've listened to it read it more than six times at this point six seven times i don't i've kind of lost count more than six times though um And I learned something every time through. So I would encourage read it, check it out again. You will you will benefit from it. I think Toni Morrison really gives some insight about the victimization and how black people are responding to racism, white supremacy. Uh, Thank you all again. We'll be back tomorrow, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice. Imme- oh, yeah, I wanted to make sure I got in. Allison Felix is super gorgeous. Woo! Man, oh, man. I didn't get to see Allison Felix. She's a black female. She won a gold medal in uh, the 200. I think she's doing the relay. Wow, we. She is uh, super, super, super gorgeous. I didn't have. I don't have any negative comments about her hair. Anything else? She's super gorgeous. She did happen to win a gold medal, too, but that's kind of... I'm not going to say irrelevant, but that was not the uh, number one thing. Wowie, gorgeous black female. We'll be back tomorrow. Replace the whole track team. I'm yeah. sorry? I think the whole track team, female track team, gorgeous. Oh, I didn't see the whole team. If they all look like her, then I'd say, yeah, they're pretty gorgeous, but she's pretty fine. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. Uh, replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cows signing out. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.